my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. Each episode of Valar Reredus for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches of three or four or five. A standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time we see them, but our other standard disclaimer applies as well. The chapters that have already been actually published rather than read aloud at conventions are less likely to change, and this is one of those. This one was fully published rather than just read aloud, so I'd say it's more likely to stay stable without any changes at all, and if there are changes, they'd probably be pretty minor. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And with that, our guests to help us break down this most excellent, interesting chapter is our friends, yes, friends, plural, from the Isle of Faces podcast. And you all are used to hearing us mention one person from the Isle of Faces pod. So that's the first thing we'll discuss here. I want you all to tell everybody about this new change, this exciting uh, doubling of your personnel and Mm -hmm. what you guys are up to over there. Hi, hello. Good to see everyone again. Good to finally get here. Sorry for already continuing my streak of tech issues. It wouldn't really be a uh, guest appearance by me unless I mess it up somehow. But yeah, here now. And uh, as, you, as you said, Aziz, joined by Emily of the Eerie, who is my new, uh, at least part-time co-host over on the Isle of Faces uh, for all our new episodes and things that we've got going. So yeah, it gives me great pleasure to bring Emily along today. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for uh, asking me to join here and uh, the, the aisle as well. Mm-hmm. And you guys are doing what you're calling scraps and screens, right? As opposed to the Val Iriridis episodes, which were scraps and scrolls. That's right. Yeah, well, we're going to get to those. We haven't even started those yet. So we've got scraps and scrolls, obviously. We're still going along with you guys. But we've also started doing our 100 questions on the Winds of Winter series. We've had episode one. We've got our first 10 questions out of the way. So only 90 left to go. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. And then, yes, we will be starting scraps and screens as well and going back for Game of Thrones. So that's pretty exciting for both of us, I think. Yeah. I, think that's a really in- I think that's a really interesting thing you guys are doing, by the way, the 100 questions, because oh, it'll be a way when The Winds of Winter comes out for you to find all of your predictions kind of in one yeah. place. Whereas for us, if we wanted to see what we thought about for Ariane, we like have to go to many, many episodes. We've never said it succinctly. Yeah, sometimes I forget what my take is. On yeah, I honestly think that when the Winds of Winter is announced, <laughs> I'll use something like, you know, your list of 100 questions, some polls and whatever, and write down my own, my answers for all of that. So it, it's pretty cool. 
thanks. Yeah, we have a glorious spreadsheet going. It's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder just how many spreadsheets this fandom has generated. Above (laughs) an above average number, I'd say. So yeah, this is going to be a great episode. We're we're used to having uh, Isle of Faces thoughts all throughout the episode. And of course, we, as usual, also have Nina's thoughts throughout this episode. GoodQueenAlley with one L dot Tumblr dot com for more. Uh, she's particularly strong on Ariane thoughts. We've got a lot of great predictions as well as strong interpretations of what's going on here that we've all worked together on. And we're excited to share that with you. First of all, though, it is Mother's Day. Often an episode or a live stream falls on a holiday and I don't think this is the first time we've had a Mother's Day episode, but it's very much worth celebrating and mentioning. Happy Mother's Day to all moms out there. To Malario, uh, that's Doran's wife, or Doran's, yeah, and Doran's mom, whose name we don't know. She was the princess of Dorne. Long-standing small grievance with George over that. Er, Give us her, give us her name. (laughs) Yeah, he just is like, oh. (laughs) So what are you going to (laughs) do? We'll get to all the questions at the end. Brand Winslow sends a super chat, says, Happy Valarita Sunday, everyone. Glad to be back on after a week off. Question, will the game stream be back this coming Friday? Yes, it will. I did have a hard drive crash. My whole hard drive died, and I did lose the save games as well as a lot of other stuff. So uh, nothing too irreplaceable, thankfully. There's no, no harm to History of Westeros podcast uh, as far as like files lost or anything like that. So... No fun to lose your hard drive. So yes, we'll be back this Friday with a new house. I think we're going to do House Valarian. That's my initial instinct there um, in honor of House of the Dragon and all that. Each episode, we like to start with a brief history of the chapter itself, a little meta chapter history. This one was published January 21st, 2013. As I said before, officially published. Now, this was the fourth chapter released. It came eight months roughly after the infamous Missoula con that gave us several chapters all at once. That's still going to be a standout for all time. So this is the second of the fully released chapters, meaning not counting ones that were only read aloud. The first one, of course, being Theon. Let's do a brief synopsis and get to the discussions. The first line is, on the morning that she left the water gardens, her father rose from his chair to kiss her on both cheeks. It's a moving moment, a difficult thing for him to do, and so is Ariane's mission. Doran is a religious man, so perhaps he chose a party of seven to honor the gods and perhaps win a bit of their favor. Along those lines, her father implores Ariane to be safe, and she agrees. She understands that she is the future of Dorne. It's a confidence we've not seen in her POV since her failed coup. That means she has to protect herself, but she doesn't actually seem that worried along the way. What's on her mind as much as anything else is her brother and the woman her brother has been sent to marry, Daenerys Targaryen. She no longer feels threatened by Quentin as it pertains to Sunspear and her title, but he's still going to outrank her in a sense if he winds up as king. Readers may shake their head a bit at this, knowing Daenerys wasn't interested in marrying him when he was alive. Her odds of marrying him now that he's dead are decidedly lower, though we'll see about Jon Snow. Arianne insists that she loves her brother while admitting she doesn't know him very well. It's not very convincing, however. Not to the reader, nor Sir Damon Sand. Of course, Arianne does not know her brother is dead, and her worries are a major occupation. She has plenty of time to think, given the monotony of travel across the desert. She thinks about Sir Damon, her former relationship with him, her friends, many of whom are still paying the price for her attempted coup. She reflects on how foolish she was, how she's responsible for what happened to them, and to Sir Aris and Darkstar. 
They wonder how Obara and Hota are faring against him. And well, ditto, we also wonder. We meet another of Oberyn's daughters, as she is one of the seven in this party. She's known to joust and race and behave in ways that remind us of both her father and Lyanna Stark, who herself died in Dorne. They do eventually arrive at the seat of House Tolland, where further detail emerges about the dragons in play in the Game of Thrones. One source is particularly unusual, however, the young girl Tiora Tolland seems to have recurring dragon dreams and uses language we've seen before, language she has no access to that gives her dreams an air of authenticity to us readers. But to her family, she's an object of exasperation, denigrated and not taken seriously at all. They speak of John Connington, but they don't know much and nothing we haven't learned in prior chapters. His disinterest in women comes up here as Arianne is considering what options she might have. Seduction, that won't get her anywhere. And good for her, she doesn't need to catch grayscale. Beyond that, the lack of knowledge of Aegon and Connington and the rest is the point. We're going in somewhat blind. And Doran hates acting without information. He kind of just hates acting in general, but hey, they don't dare hope that this Aegon is real. But if he is, he's Doran's nephew, the son of his beloved sister Elia. But where is Quentin and the dragons and Daenerys? For all this uncertainty, they have armies waiting in the two passes that connect Doran to the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. They have orders to respond to certain passwords, and Arianne can give those commands if need be. One of those armies has the men of House Tolland, and Lady Nymella wonders if they would be better defending their homes with all this news of swords, pirates, and krakens. We know these are all legitimate threats, well described in other chapters. But her worry communicates to Arianne that many Dornish lords and ladies are probably wondering the same thing. Doran is not the only one who needs more clarity about what's happening to the north. A piece of news that did reach them, however, is of Viserys Targaryen's gruesome crowning by Khal Drogo, though they don't know Drogo by name. They do know the name of his wife, and Arianne wonders how Daenerys could allow her husband to kill her brother. In this moment, her thoughts are uncomfortably understanding of Danny's predicament and why she might choose to remove a troublesome brother. She understands not wanting to be subordinate to such, especially when said brother is weak or soft or what have you. And these thoughts are set to drive her actions as she and her party of seven take ship across the Sea of Dorne on their way to the Golden Company, John Connington, and an Aegon the Sixth they suspect is fake, plus whatever else awaits them in the Stormlands and beyond. That, my friends, is Ariane One. Oh, brother, where art thou? AKA, <laughs> oh, cousin, who art thou? Let's have some reactions. Let's see, Joe, let's start with you. You've got some great notes here, and Emily, then we'll go on to you. Yeah, I'm just glad to have Ariane back, to be honest. It seems like ages. I mean, it has been two books, really. We did get to see her a little bit in, in Dance with the Watcher with Hotar's lone chapter, but I think that actually makes it worse. That was kind of a tease. <laughs> I would have preferred to not have her because we get that glimpse of her like on side with Duran, and she's kind of been brought into the fold, but we don't. We want to see it from her point of view, not Hotar's. As lovely as Hotar is, he doesn't really uh, give that introspection that you'd really like. And sh- to be honest, she's just always been one of my favorite characters. She's the uh, the, the main pillar of the Dornish storyline. I really like the Dornish, story- Dornish storyline. Um, so she's the star of that. And I just appreciate how this chapter it deals with her personal growth, but it also pays note to the size of the task in front of her, which is... is quite a hard thing to do. The chapter itself has a pretty heavy responsibility for re-establishing Ariane because like I say, it has been ages, mm-hmm. a long, long time, both in the book and for us covering the book since we've actually got to speak about her. So we've got to re-establish that. We've got to re-establish what's going on in Dawn, the multiple plot lines going on in Dawn. And then we've got to merge perhaps the 
biggest storyline and wins maybe the, the return of the Targaryens, pretty arguable, with the southern central Westeros plot. Like we've got to bring them across. So this is probably going to be our first chance to do that in wins. Maybe John Connington sneaks in before this, but probably not. Probably this, I, I would bet. Yeah. And so in this chapter, we get to re- represent the the three questions that all of Westeros are soon going to have to go through in, are you going to side with those Targaryens? Which one are you going to pick if they both come? Do you believe Aegon's story? And eventually, what about Daenerys? And this chapter manages to hit on all three of those and Arianne and all the establishment. So it's, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, like I say, it's got a lot to bear, especially in just these preview chapters that we have. It's the only Dornish windows, the only window into Aegon. Like I say, one of the biggest storylines of wins. So our only real Westeros window, like I know we have Theon, but he's so very far away and Sansa's kind of out of the way in the veil. So this has really got a lot riding for it. And uh, I think it meets the call, to be honest. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I didn't really think about how most of the Westerosi plot lines we've gotten from Tiwau are are mostly, like you said, in in Sansa's case, she's very much... I mean, we thoroughly covered how she Peter is even potentially cutting off communication and and hiding certain Mm. pieces of news. So it really does add that element of being off to the side and not knowing what's going on and not being as involved with with everything else that's happening in mainland Westeros. Also, I think it's it's important to note here that uh, there's definitely been a change in Arian's attitude. She's no longer wondering about Dorne and, and her place. Uh, she still has similar worries, but they're in a different spot now uh, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't want to be subordinate to Quentin. It's a big deal, too, that this conflict has just shifted a little bit instead of worrying about her title, she's worried about her brother's title, which used to be sort of similar. So what do you think about, uh, what's your general reaction to this chapter, uh, Emily, and anything else you want to add to the the beginning here? Yeah, I think this is a really like transformational chapter for Arianne. It's it's the first time that we've seen her in a while. You know, it's showing the many ways that she's grown since the time in the Spear Tower. That conversation with Doran at the front, like really kind of sets the tone right off the bat. He's talking about dispatching her as his eyes and ears and voice. And, you know, she's having a lot of thoughts, not in just what she says to him, but internally about how she can't fail him and how, you know, she is taking this mantle of responsibility up for sure. Uh, I think it's equally important to note, though, that in all the ways that she's maturing, we're also seeing little glimmers of, of ways that she's still the same old Ariane. She's not all of a sudden transformed into this perfect princess who's doing everything right. That'd be bad writing if a little bit of isolation and a couple of conversations with her dad had fully transformed her <laughs> from this kind of, yeah, from this like somewhat petty and failed plot maker to some mastermind of strategy and conspiracy. And I'm glad that we're, we're not seeing that here. Uh, George is giving us these little hints here and there that, yes, progress has been made and you can see that shift in her internal attitude, but it also still illustrates, you know, that she's got a little ways to go and that, you know, her flaws aren't going to ever fully disappear. I think that's that's very well said too. And the way the chapter's laid out, it starts you off with this like, oh, she's changed. But then as you as things progress, you see her inner monologue and you start to see, oh, these are some familiar thoughts. She is having similar thoughts. They're, they are more mature. They're more advanced. They're more sophisticated, mm-hmm. but they're still coming from a similar place of anxiety, of, of pride mm-hmm. and, and a few other things that are related. Mostly survival too. I mean, let's be honest. She's, she's worried about Having to kneel to Quentin is is partly a pride thing, an ego thing, maybe, but it's also something that she worries about as far as her her future and, and safety, things like that. So a lot of things wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. But this initial quote, it's it's one of the other things she's seems to have come to understand. This moment, it's very meaningful to her. She gets what her father is doing here with this this act of standing and how much 
that means to her. We, Joe, you, you pulled that line. Um, you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's on like the first page. If I remember rightly, I haven't got the text right in front of me, but it's it's pretty immediate that we have this, um, like you say, this really really symbolic gesture of Duran actually standing up. I did have to go back and check because I thought we had seen him stand up at some point, but I did check today and we haven't. We've never actually seen him stand up. Okay. So this is obviously a, a big deal for him, and I do wonder if he did the same for Quentin, maybe, and he knows how what a big deal this is. Ooh. Well, we'll come to talk about it later, but the fact, not just his symbolism from Duran, but also at the end of that quote in Ariane thinking, he believes in me, I will not fail him. That sounds exactly like Quentin all the way through dance. So you can see how they've both got these parallels of they're both going off on daddy's mission now. They both don't want to fail. We're going to see some very, very similar thought trains, I think, from Ariane as Quentin did. Uh, hopefully it will end slightly differently, but you can see how they're going to both have that pressure and yeah I, I just think it's really important to get that straight off at the beginning that she's appreciating Duran because like we say we saw that she was already on side yeah. in dance and she'd gone over and she was part of the part of the mix there but getting it from her that's entirely different from getting it uh, through Hotar so I think George is really just kind of knocking one out of the park at the beginning really putting that down considering how strained their relationship was before in her two chapters and just setting that off and I think, to be fair, that's it's like one of the biggest things that actually happens in the whole chapter. Like, not a lot of real things happen in this chapter. Like, at the beginning, we're told she's going on the journey. That's pretty much, like, there's not actually much else. It's a lot more thinking and deliberation and yeah. internal thought for the rest of the chapter. So it really, really does start off, uh, start off pretty quickly, George, which, you know, he often does. <laughs> True that. Well said. So let's talk about, let's build on what we've discussed so far here and talk about Arian's personality. Because you're right, that is... What's going? Her inner monologue is the core of this chapter, and it's it's sort of impacted by things Damon Sands says and certain other uh, thoughts that come up. Like he's sort of her sounding board. I think I think one of you even wrote that in the, in the notes here, which I thought was a really good way to put it. So in our last episode, we talked about how changes to Sansa, how she's coming along, she's a little different now, and that is a very good topic to apply to this chapter as well. It was my own fault. Arian had made them part of her plot to steal off with Marcella Baratheon and crown her queen, an act of rebellion meant to force her father's hand. But someone's loose tongue had undone her. The clumsy conspiracy had accomplished nothing except to cost poor Marcella part of her face and Sir Aris Oakheart his life. I'm glad you kind of threw it back to Feast there because uh, in doing some reading for this, I was looking at Arian 1 of Feast where she's thinking to herself and says about her father, it's time he put his burdens down, but I will suffer no slights to his honor or his person. Mm. Uh, this, I think, has the smackings of someone who was raised with a lot of privilege, but is kind of missing the big picture or has a little ways to mature. It actually reminds me of kind of a mix of Sansa's earlier naivete, but there's also a bit of Theon's prideful assumptions in there regarding his place in House Greyjoy as he's returning to Pike. Mm. Um, you know, he, he has all these kind of ideas about what his father or his uncle should be doing. And, and this quote really drove the similarities home with that. But here in the Sable chapter, we see how much Arianne's relationship with Doran has been repaired by his empathetic but stern handling of her failed plot. And of course, by his actual inviting of her finally into this conspiracy in a major way. Uh, something that her brother was invited into quite a bit earlier. The change in their relationship is on display right away, as we've kind of already covered at the top of the chapter. 
um, when he says that quote that Joe covered, uh, that he believes in me. I will not fail him. Uh, this thought comes during that, that emotional farewell. And it's really nice to see that Ariane's internal monologue and how she's thinking about her father, not just what she says to him, is changing. It's more likely that these are her true opinions, not just lip service she's giving someone. So to me, this was a lot of progression uh, towards you know seeing him as the respected leader that you know hopefully she can you know uh, follow in his footsteps someday rather than some old fool who she needs to step aside. Yeah, that's really well said. I think it's important to note that, or at least maybe ask the question: Would she have reacted with this way to him standing if this was the Ariane who was still thinking of rebelling against him? Like she may have just been more cynical about it and thought he was trying to manipulate her because she was that's where she was at. She was like, oh, all this is he's trying to manipulate me. Now she has realized he wasn't really manipulating her, at least not in ways that she totally disagrees with. And she also realizes that, yeah, oops, he was going to give me Dorn. So she's, <laughs> she's got a lot more respect for him. So uh, yeah, I think that <laughs> yeah. she would not have seen it the same way. I was going to say, just in general, it's interesting. She, you know, is thinking about herself so much in the earlier chapters, but here she's like making note of other people's body language and watching other people quite a bit more. Not just the objects of her seduction, but like everyone in the room, she's paying a lot more attention to. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, Yeah, I I agree. Especially in that meeting, like you say, she was like ultra bratty. Like she went too far the other way. Like I'm going to sit down, bring Hotar back if you don't want to tell me off those kind of things. Like she's going too far the other way. But I, I quite like Emmy bringing up the feast quote there because you can almost see this progression through quotes because in Dance, again, I, I went back to Hotar's chapter. I can't remember which sand snake it is, but one of them says something to the effect of, uh, like, you'll do nothing, Duran, you never do anything. And Ariane actually does speak up in defense and say, oh, you do him wrong or something along those lines. So we've actually got this little progression now from what Emily just said, feast to dance. Now we get to see the the whole thing on display, uh, like, like you've just gone through. And yeah, I think comparing her to Sansa is a pretty good idea. They've actually, they're actually almost exactly lined up in terms of how long we've been away. I think The Princess and the Tower was the chapter before Sansa's last chapter in Feast. So depending on where they are in Winds, they're going to be pretty close to being that far away, even though we have seen Ariane Chi in a bit. That's a good point. But, yeah. yeah, as to what you said, there's tons of maturing and, and owning up done by Ariane, especially in the early part of the chapter, like Emily was saying. She really looks back on that kind of failed practice run, that failed like preseason game that the Marcella plot was. Now she's walking into the real thing, into like the playoffs, and she's realized that I can't mess around because look what happens when I do mess around. And in all fairness to her, she doesn't excuse anything. She doesn't say it, it was this person's fault or that person's fault. She admits what part she played. And Emily made a really good point there. She is thinking about the consequences of what has happened to other people. She, like, she literally lists them. She goes through the whole party, in part to remind us, because I think some of them might come up later, but also because she is feeling the, the weight of those decisions, which is going to matter now because those decisions are even bigger. She's got much more power. Like you mentioned in the, in the synopsis, there's those two Dornish armies at the click of her fingers. Uh, there's a lot more people than the original six she could affect. Yeah. And that mission, it plays throughout her mind uh, in the whole chapter. Like She is absolutely focused on it. She's looking at all angles. She's asking Damon for every uh, possible way to approach it that she can. It's her, it's her obsession. A bit like, well, lots of people like Stannis in, um, up in the north. Like He's got one minute, one mission, one line at the moment is to win that war. And Ariane's getting to the same point because she knows how important it is. She knows she's walking out into 
main political stage. She's got to make an impression to John Connington, to Egan, whoever. And actually, as you, uh, you just mentioned something that sparks off my mind. You were talking about her safety as well. They do become very aware in this chapter. They are walking into a war zone. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she's spent her whole life in Sunsphere, really. She's never been in any kind of danger or anything, really. So this is a, a very big thing just entering the world. It is a real growing up chapter, uh, especially early on. I really like that about this chapter. Right on. Yeah, very well said. It is good to compare Santa to Ariane, I think, in terms... I think we did that back back when they had their end of their feast arcs. And so you're right, I mm. think, to, to mention it's been a similar amount of time off between them. And the maturing process is a big part of both their arcs, but it's fair to point out, too, Ariane's quite a bit older than Sansa, so she's had a lot more life experience, and obviously the circumstances are a, a bit different, even though there's a lot of things in, in, that are similar. So that is probably our probably our best comparison at this point. But That's an interesting argument, actually, isn't it? Who has actually had more life experience? Because Sansa has been, she is younger, but she has been through like way, way, way more than Ariane as well. That's a good point, yeah. A lot more... <laughs> Controversy, anyway. So that'd be interesting to kind of uh, do a direct head-to-head there. Yeah. Whereas Ariane has experienced kind of the normalcy of growing up, yeah. of experiences. She hasn't had a lot of difficulty as of yet in her life. It's been the exact opposite for Sansa after a certain age. They both True. probably had fairly, you know, idyllic childhoods. We hear it described from Ariane at the Water Gardens and learning mm-hmm. different things, and yeah. Well, yeah, just it just changed for Ariane's arc change, and Sansa's, you know, had to her world was thrown into chaos much earlier than than Ariane's. That's a very good point. One thing, even that Sansa isn't is maybe getting old enough to do. We certainly see it. She hasn't seduced anyone, but she's certainly starting to use that element of her character. She's flirt. She flirts with Harry for a purpose, not because she's interested in him, right? Um, things like that, and of course, that is a something we can compare to Ariane very distinctly because Ariane is like ready to use seduction <laughs> on anyone if it's need, like she's one of her go-to weapons and well, she's good at it, so why not? But she, of course, she still has mixed feelings over how it worked out the last time. Uh, Emily, why don't you read us this quote? In the end, he could not live with what he'd done. Why else would her white knight have charged right into Ario Hotel's long axe to die the way that he did? I was a foolish, willful girl playing a Game of Thrones like a drunkard rolling dice. Yeah, so she's going to use that. And we've already talked about how she's not going to use it on Connington. Of course, he's not interested. Neither would she be if she knew what was going on with his hand. So, but it's, it kind of goes both ways here, right? She's not going to go after Connington that way, but she might go after young Aegon. And Arianne is good at this. Aegon has never had a relationship. I think we could maybe predict how that would go, which is he would be probably just go head over heels. But maybe not. That's not a sure thing. It just seems like it's a strong possibility. But let's talk about seduction and how this is going to affect things going forward. We'll start with you, Joe. Yeah, well, we know it it was her weapon of choice at the beginning. That's basically how we were introduced to her through through Aeris. Um, And she is thinking of it throughout this chapter again, like you say, uh, and she will try and use it if she thinks it's going to work but she also kind of realizes that it's she doesn't have like complete control of it like it goes two ways she can be seduced as well she mentions dark star and kind of thinks of like oh that was a big mistake i shouldn't have gone that way and she worries that might happen again we could easily have those same worries 
probably not with Aegon. I don't think he's smart enough to use it that way, but it could still get her in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we could see the same thing with Damon. Uh, that kind of comes up in this chapter as well. We, we, yeah, we see her slip up a little bit with Damon and actually kind of get rebuffed and she doesn't really know how to quite handle it. And you've got to remember, she's already had one of those recently. Again, I bring up Dance. She tried the weapon with Balen Swan and it didn't work at all. So she might be kind of looking for a, a bit of a booster, a bit of a confidence uh, booster <laughs> soon to make sure she hasn't lost her skills completely. And it probably will come up at some point. Like I say, I think she will probably struggle with either Aegon or Damon or both. There could easily be a little triangle forming there. It could go anyway, but it's definitely, it's another thing present throughout the chapter. I've got to say, to be honest, more than most chapters, all the themes seem to all be present like all the time in this chapter. Mm. Everything is kind of like always there. Like normally we get like sections and you can kind of pick out bits. But I think George does a really good job of just keeping everything going all the way through this chapter. And that's difficult to do, right, at a beginning chapter like this. That's usually something like a culmination. You like bring themes together after a while. I mean, I guess this is a sixth book, so you could say that it has been a while. But (laughs) anyway, (laughs) what do you think about this, uh, Emily? What What are your takes yeah, I mean, I think Joe makes a good point here. And I think like a travel chapter where, like like you said, a lot of the important stuff happens up front and then we're just kind of getting places. It makes sense that you can weave a lot of themes into an otherwise maybe a little bit boring plot-wise story or chapter. But um, as far as the seduction side of things, I think it's important to see she is becoming a bit more capable of knowing the limits of her seduction. Um, you know, the, the rebuffing she's gotten from uh, Balon Swan, but also... The idea when she's starting to think about John Connington and, and not immediately going, oh, my only weapon here is seduction, you know, kind of taking a step back and taking herself out of that kind of go-to strategy shows a little bit of growth. Um, but the clear confusion about why Damon is a little bit cold to her now when she's trying things out on him, so she still has some learning to go uh, there. To us, it's pretty obvious why Damon would feel slighted by the idea that he's good enough to take to bed, but definitely not good enough to marry. But she just seems kind of confused by that. Like, what's the problem? Like, uh, other people seem good with this arrangement. And uh, (laughs) it's kind of aloof of the whole thing. So uh, I think this could be some foreshadowing that she's going to make another miscalculation in the power of her sexual appeal. But uh, it probably, I don't see it happening with John Connington. I think it could be with Aegon or just the whole drama of, you know, she might be going after Aegon, Aegon might be into that, but we've got other people in play who are really trying to push her towards John Connington to keep Aegon free. I think, you know, th- there's just a lot of things that could go sideways there with a character like Arianne. You know, we've been talking about Daenerys, right? And about what Arianne thinks of her. And I really keep thinking about how how they have a lot of similarities between them, specifically to do with Damon Sand in terms of their dealing with their interest with someone who isn't really good enough for the position that they're in. They're both struggling with it quite a lot. Obviously, Danny with Dario and then uh, Ariane with Damon here. Guy with a six-letter name that starts with D. (laughs) Gotta get that D. They both want that D. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. We've stumbled on something that we maybe didn't want to stumble on. (laughs) Ha, ha. No, that's uh, yeah, that's really good thought. I didn't think to connect Daenerys's relationship to Dario like that. Uh, that's a really good catch. A take from Nina here. I think she's definitely on board with the idea that Aegon is going to be the target. She's gonna. She's she thinks that yeah. She thinks about trying to sway John Connington, but she doesn't have to. Well, she's going to realize that she can just bypass John Connington and just 
if she wins Aegon over and has him on in her corner, it doesn't necessarily matter what John Connington wants. Of course, he has power, but she'll have the upper hand if she gets in good with the young king. And Nina also asked a good question. What is John Connington going to think of Arianne? He doesn't seem to care a lot about women because partly because of his orientation and because he's just kind of a jerk. I mean, <laughs> he's just a... He, I mean, he is, right? He's very selfish about this mission and, and hiding his disease and all that. But he does kind of also see this child as his son of a sort, right? He's it's sort of an adopted child. Vibes of Aegon, uh, of John and Ned, but in a much different way. John, Ned never used John to fix his past, whereas John is using this kid to fix his past and fix his old relationship with Rhaegar that he never got to have. So there's a lot of, the pathos behind it is very different, but it makes sense maybe from a plot perspective, kind of seeing how it's going to play out to say, yes, Arianne might realize what's somewhat obvious that if she gets control of the king, she has control of, of everything. And that's been said since the beginning. Since, again, Ned Stark comes up. What did Renly tell Ned when right before Cersei's coup? He who controls the king controls the kingdom. And that's very much going on here. This is not necessarily what we would have suspected as a way for the king to be controlled by a woman who's gotten, you know, who's, they've fallen in love or whatever, or, or in lust, whatever you want to call it. So I think that's a great way to look at it and to see we don't know what's going to happen with John Cunningham, how he's going to react to this to see like, oh God, she's seducing him and she's manipulating him. And he's going to probably think of it as much worse than it really is, but it probably is going to be threatening to him, especially if she encourages him to work against Daenerys, <laughs> which is not mm. a good idea. Uh, that's certainly what's in her mind in this chapter. That's certainly where we see things. You can just see the situation like forming, can't you? Because you can see John pushing Aegon in that direction because we've already seen them like get a bit tiffy. Aegon wants to do his thing. Jon wants to keep him under wraps still. Um, he's already thought about like he wants to pick the King's Guard and Aegon wants to pick the King's Guard. It's going to be the same with Brides and you can see like you say like the tire he holds. Aegon, I don't think Aegon's going to need that much persuading anyway if Arianne <laughs> really puts the moves on. But you can see oh, I'll annoy Dad. <laughs> I'll annoy uh, old John here pretty easily and, and away he goes. And I just think you, you can just see it forming <laughs> too easily and I think that would be a real, another real comparison we can make to Sansa because we probably will be seeing the exact same thing going on with Harry. And it, you can imagine like if, there, if this wasn't a risk of war, if there was no risk of losing half your country and dragons coming across, you could still see Duran saying to Ariane like, Oh, you maybe you should go over there and and have a go with it. Like if we all knew Aegon <laughs> yeah. was real or whatever, yeah. like that's the exact kind of thing he would want to do. It's exactly the same as what Peter Bailey is doing with Sansa, like <laughs> just using what they think is at their disposal. Yeah, so you can really see the, the comparisons between those two again. So I think Nina's right to suspect that Connington is going to not like Arianne because he's mm. kind of got control over Aegon, but Aegon's already breaking free of that control, and with Arianne coming into the picture, he's going to lose even more of that and could see how he might just be kind of on the outs as far as an advisor. And that would just drive him nuts. And of course, he's dangerous and bloody and, and um, revenge-minded and, and won't uh, stint or uh, you know, be ashamed of doing brutal things. The idea of this uh, kind of Tywin wannabe uh, yes. having Tyrion's advice about you know Daenerys and you don't, you don't need her uh, being quoted to him at some point <laughs> is 
part of this potential marriage arrangement. This has me laugh. I really hope we get something like that. <laughs> and it's such an easy sell. Not only is Arian hot mm-hmm. and good at seduction, which is maybe enough, but Aegon believes he's real. And Arianne, if she she's kind of suspicious, he's not. But she's not going to tell him that if, <laughs> if she's trying to seduce him. That's not going to be part of. Like, by the way, look at you know, look how hot I am. But also, you're not really Aegon. <laughs> like that's not going to be part. That's not really how you seduce someone. Uh, I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure you don't say that kind of thing. So, and she gets to say, "Look, you're the son of my aunt," you know, and all this stuff, and it's meant to be. Like it just fits so well. They've already talked about how they have to make sense Dorn. historically as well. Yeah, it's, it just fits so well. So I think this Sivas, we've seen a lot of Sivas in the last few books. I think this is very telling when Damon's like, you know, there's other pieces beside the dragon. And to me, that's suggestive of this very plot line that she's going to focus on the king, which is the dragon, sort of like the strongest piece. It's not quite, that's not quite how it works in chess. The queen's the strongest piece, but it's the same metaphor, right? Just controlling the center, controlling the the one that matters most and letting everything else kind of fall by the wayside, just controlling the, the strongest piece. And it, it's, it speaks to how she might focus on Aegon and just uh, work her magic on him and let everything else fall around that. Uh, Emily, you've got some thoughts here on, on this as well, uh, this particular mm-hmm. passage as well. So let's hear from you here. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it's it's Damon who she obviously has a past with who's giving her this advice here. You know, you have other pieces besides the dragon princess. Try moving them sometime. <laughs> so, you know, winding it back to Feast, as I'll continue to do, we see Ariane get kind of a bit of tunnel vision around her plan to crown Marcella and just being so sure it's totally going to work out. Uh, you know, me and my seven people are going to totally overthrow the government. <laughs> She isn't really thinking broadly enough about all the players in the game and the limits of her own influence or her perspective at that point. And here, again, through this Sybass symbolism, Damon warns her to consider other pieces. This seems like one of those lessons that isn't really sinking in quickly enough for Arianne. Um, and I'm curious if it ever will. I also think it foreshadows a bit of the reasoning behind Damon's place in her party to help her consider all of the available information, not just what's directly in front of her eyes or obvious to her in that moment. Oh, very good. Yeah. And another point that's worth mentioning here, Nina writes that, yeah, Arianne's trying to convince herself that this family conflict within her own house is over, but it clearly isn't. Uh, she's still just constantly thinking about her brother. And we might say, oh, well, that's going to work itself out. Her brother's dead. But not if she's already set herself up in advance to be positioned against him, like in advance of Quentin and Danny arriving, she's already married Aegon and rallied the realm in advance of that and started the propaganda campaign that we sort of expect, or at least played into that, that we expect to really hit Danny hard and make her look less in- appealing to Westeros as a ruler. So that's a really big deal, I think. So Joe, what do you think here? Yeah, you know, I think you and Nina and Emily all kind of knocked out of the park. That dragon thing is, is just kind of hit you in the face straight away. I know what you're saying, George. I know what you're up to. <laughs> that kind of thing. To me, it's a little worrying symbolically that Ariane's not improved her game at all, especially after the conversation with Duran, where, where he's like, don't play if you don't think you can win. And she maybe should have taken that on board and done some more practicing, but Maybe not. I mean, she's got bigger things to think about right now, to be fair, than practicing her Savas game. But I wonder, I mean, your points are all great. I wonder if that maybe George is actually giving us a hint of the other direction of 
okay, you're fixating on dragons. You're all looking east or well, north now. You're all looking out of dawn. And I think we'll probably come to talk about this a bit later with some other questions. But I do wonder if maybe that's a hint that Duran, I guess especially, isn't looking behind him to the west, to the rest of dawn enough. And he's kind of turned his back. Well, he's always kind of been fixated on these massive plans anyway. But now that they're actually here, he's really not paying attention to what's going on in his own country. Um, I spoke on uh, Radio Restos live stream a few months ago about that political situation and what could come in wins. I, I really think we will get to see a lot of that boil up. Um, so I just wonder if that's a hint of like, don't look that direction all the time because stuff is going on behind you, they're going to be out reacting to these dragons as well and reacting to how you react. And you need to be aware of all the pieces. And maybe that means other people in King's Landing, but it might also mean the other Dornish. That's a great point, because if we were to think of another character, probably the only other really important character that's used seduction who uh, as a weapon or as a tool is Cersei. And if we were to think about Arianne, and review this chapter and her other chapters. Has she ever given a fig of a thought to Cersei? I, I don't think so. Very little, right? <laughs> a fig, what an interesting way for me to phrase that. Yeah, she just hasn't, like, it just, you're right. So this is a, a, an example of, she's not thinking about the Tyrells, she's not thinking about Cersei, she's not thinking about the Stark, she's not really thinking about anyone, but <laughs> Aegon, and maybe a little bit about John Connington and Quentin and Daenerys. So she's, that's a, that's a really good point. And Emily, I'm going to kick it over to you. Sure. I'm going to kind of take it back to Arian's sexuality a little bit because I think that's where she and Cersei have a lot of overlap. Obviously, you know, we see Arian wield her sexuality before we even get to her first POV chapter. We immediately get this femme fatale image in her interactions with Aerys Oakheart. Uh, but as we're introduced to her and see her in her own point of view, we see her fail at plotting and, and try to progress forward. A different picture starts to emerge of her and more details we get, we, we kind of start maybe understanding why sexuality is such a weapon for her. We get this image of a girl who at 14 reads a letter from her father to her brother, which allegedly is setting her aside her birthright in favor of what she assumes is a more like kind of traditional Westeros patriarchy where the male will inherit, not the firstborn. It doesn't feel like a coincidence that it's right around this time when she's 14 that she loses her virginity to Damon Sand, who's in this chapter. And in general, starts exploring her sexuality as a way to gain back some agency and a sense of control over her life. Feeling like her father has lost confidence in her qualities as a leader, she kind of falls back onto more traditional feminine mode of control, particularly in the time period, which would be sex. We obviously see Cersei do this, not always successfully. Mm -hmm. uh, she thinks she's a bit more clever about it than she is. And, <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's some overlap there with Arianne, absolutely. Um, now that Arianne knows the truth about Duran's plotting, she's starting to flex those leadership skills again for the first time in a while, trying to be strategic and to emulate her father. But the familiar patterns that she's developed over the last, what, 10 years um, don't just evaporate away. She can't help herself with Damon a few times in this chapter, just egging him on or, you know, making a little bit of an advance at him. And we all expect seduction in general to be a, a major part of what's coming with Aegon. She's already written off John Connington. Before. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> Smart <laughs> with, with her embodying the future of Dorne, I'm very interested to see where she lands, more like the cautious, strategic side of Dorne and her father or the seductive and dangerous uncle and the Sand Snakes as well. Yeah, she's going to take risks to try to... Because she sees bigger risks down the line if she doesn't take risks now. 
And if she's operating on bad information, I mean, just setting yourself up to be the enemy of Daenerys is just by itself. That's just a terrible idea. Or, or against whoever's the, the dragon side are on. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, let's, let's talk about some of the new slash newish characters introduced in this chapter. Some of them we've technically seen before. Damon Sand is a good example. We've seen him before, but I don't know that he's spoken uh, until this chapter. And if he did, it, it was very little. He was over in Squire. So we saw him around by the trial by combat. He's the one who tossed him his spear, helped him get dressed. It's said that he's an excellent swordsman. He's very insightful. Obviously, he's, uh, he, he makes a lot of cutting comments to Ariane. He kind of sorts of, at some points, maybe reads her better than she's reading herself. And I'm curious about what this character means. He he's, seems to be the most prominent of her party of seven. That doesn't mean it'll stay that way. There's certainly other characters we're going to talk about, but he's certainly the one that has the biggest role in this chapter. And he's the one we've seen the most before. So a little bit more background on him. He's a bastard of house Illyrian. And the Illyrians are, as we can see, they're only a few days away from Sunspear. They're vassals of, of Sunspear and have a longstanding relationship. Interestingly, Damon Sand's father is married into the Ironwoods. I don't necessarily think that's going to lead to trouble, but it's something to keep in mind because the, uh, these, these family loyalties sometimes can be split. One thing I think about when I think of Damon is how traumatized he must actually be by his experience with Oberyn during the trial. Like, I mean, he grew up. This was, you know, he, he grew up as his squire. He's known him for so long. I mean, anyone seeing that probably was a little traumatized, but to see his head kind of explode there. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I wonder what his thoughts are on that. He certainly brings him up a few times. His name gets mentioned and we'll, we'll touch on that. But that's a good point. Yeah, you wonder, because he was a witness. We saw Ilaria's pain. She, you know, wailed. And obviously that was her lover. Of course, she's going to be, and the father of her, many of her children, of course, she's going to be upset. But yeah, I guess Damon sort of suffered in silence there. I wonder if it's an indication that they were not ever lovers. I don't think they were ever. Yeah, but... I don't think they were. But <laughs> it's, it's possible, though. I think it's just one of those things people say about someone who's queer. They're like, oh, we yeah. must be with the young boy. Yeah, the same things were said about Damon Targaryen, which is an interesting... Uh, let me go ahead and jump ahead to that since I mentioned his name. Nina makes some notes here on the naming convention here and how that's important. Like, having a name like Damon, there's only a few Damons in the story, and they're all very notable for being, like, rebel types. Like, you have Damon Targaryen, who's about to be a big, much more prominent character on House of the Dragon, was, uh, yeah, definitely had some issues with his brother's rule and wanted to be the heir. And of course, that's a whole nother story, but you guys know what I mean. Blackfire Rebellions, Damon Targaryen, right? That's a huge deal. And we later have an actual gay black, you know, yeah, Damon I, as well. That's true. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a really notable name choice for George. You wonder if he's doing something there or if maybe it's just he just likes that name. But Nina also writes how he's a, a bit of a parallel to Kristen Cole along the lines of kingmaking, <laughs> may as well call up the name of the actual kingmaker himself. They both have this aristocratic, aristocratic lineage, but they're not very high up on the chain. In Kristen Cole's case, 
he got big because he was an amazing warrior. But House Cole, eh, not very big. Illyrian is a pretty decent house, but he's a bastard. So he, he loses a step in society because of that, or a couple steps, doesn't have a claim or inheritance or anything like that. So there's definitely a lot of feel, a lot of these sort of elements that we associate with overthrow, with rebellion, that are all part of this, let alone some of the other characters. Yeah, I'm pretty interested in Damon, although in this chapter, I think you mentioned earlier, he, de- he is like Damon Sounding Board, should be his <laughs> name, really, if that can be a bastard name, because that is the role he serves from the majority. Yeah, Damon Sounding Board. It, it does work. You can you can get it together if you really you can, want to. You can, you're right. <laughs> if you really try. But he's he's basically there as someone for Ariane to bounce ideas off of, which she needs, because as we said earlier, she is walking into this new territory. She's not confident. She doesn't really know what she's doing. Uh, like she could pretty much do all this in her head. He doesn't like supply her with any massive piece of information in this chapter that she didn't know already really but she needs to talk it out and she needs to kind of reassure herself and kind of double layer so that's that's her use for him but our use for him i think is that he he provides this extra window into oberin's life and given how much we all love oberin for how short time we got with him like he's one of the most we'd like really like to know more about and even just in a few sentences he really achieves that he gets me excited when he says like like just the possibility that Oberyn wanted to kill Darkstar at some point. Right, And then you yeah. can imagine that duel. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, let's have some more of that, please. Just tell us what Oberyn thought of everybody and all these things that he planned and all. Like, that's our one window, really. I don't think we're probably going to get much of that from Alaria or Duran. So Damon could be really cool for that. It's a really exciting role for him. But I also think, well, Emily touched on this a bit earlier, like he's a proud man. Uh, he does kind of rebuff Ariane later. He's not going to just fall into fall into line I suppose he's got his own thing maybe that is to do with the trauma that you just mentioned as well maybe mm. he's just kind of shutting down at the moment but I think there's potential for him to be a spanner in the works later if Ariane does go off of Vega and, and he becomes jealous or there, there's certainly room for that kind of expansion of role for Ariane I think he represents kind of the path not taken it's a weird choice to be honest that Duran sent him along knowing their their history and what going on, but what went on between them. I imagine it is because he's listed as like the best sword in Dawn now, and at the end of the day, Duran wants Ariane to be safe, but it's still kind of an odd choice. But I think for Ariane, that he does, if there was no big war coming, and if there was no revenge plot, if if they were in another time, he would be the non-political, non-big game choice. She could have stayed with him, she could have taken him as a paramour. Okay, yeah, like politically, she would still be expected to go and marry someone else. But then again, Oberyn had Ilaria and Duran mar- married Malario from half the world away. So it's not like there's no precedence for uh, choosing who you want if you're the, the ruler. So yeah, I think he will represent that. And I think she does touch on that very slightly, but she, she keeps herself to the mission. She's like, I can't go too far down that road because if I get distracted, well, I know what I'm like when I get distracted with the pretty boys. I need to actually <laughs> stay on task here. Let's not let's talk about John Connington or, or Viserys or something else, please, Damon. Don't, uh, don't change the subject. <laughs> yeah, and Ari- and uh, Tyrion even thinks back uh, when he sees Aegon. He's like, "Yeah, you know, wash that blue out of your hair, and a lot of a lot of the girls in Westeros are going to look at you real nice. Like, we'll take a long little <laughs> double take or whatever he says." So that yeah, that is perhaps setting this up. And yeah, that's a really good point about Oberyn too. Like this guy was his squire, and Oberyn's not like a 
quiet, secretive guy. This is an outspoken <laughs> man. So yeah, Damon probably heard a few things. One thing that just occurred to me during this is I hope Damon doesn't like get it in his mind to get revenge on Oberyn's behalf and like challenge the mountain because that won't go well. <laughs> like, so uh, Emily, let's throw it over to you. What do you think here about Damon and what some of the things Damon says and all that? I think, you know, where Damon goes in the next few chapters is going to tell us a lot. I think there's a good chance that he's actually just like a wise and mature person who 10 years after kind of being rejected by Duran has maybe moved on a little bit more than Arianne has, hopefully. Um, you know, I mean, Oberyn obviously has his public image, but privately we've found out quite a bit more about him and some of the things that he, you know, was getting up to and how he really was Duran's hand. So there's a good chance that Damon has earned a lot of trust beyond just his skill at arms here. Could be totally wrong, you know, could could create some drama, but um, I'm hoping here maybe this is a way to illustrate, hey, Doran, you know, he's made some mistakes, but he's not completely a terrible player. Maybe yeah. this was a good move by him. We'll find out. I also think it's interesting to see Damon be used to add credibility to the danger of Darkstar. We know the audience is never really connected with the idea that Darkstar is a serious threat to anyone uh, besides an ear. Um, <laughs> but... Where are the moths around Darkstar? Now we have someone who's a, apparently this extremely competent warrior, the best sword in Dorne, shield to the heiress of Dorne, warning her that Obara is just as likely to die at Gerald's hands as he is at hers. So it's still a little tell, not show, but I found its inclusion interesting as kind of a way to, to bring Darkstar back up and to say, you know, uh, you haven't seen much yet, but maybe there is something here yeah. to be worried about. Another point from Nina related to this is along the lines of Kristen Cole and in parallels with Damon Sanders that Kristen eventually, uh, Kristen and Raina eventually have a falling out. And it's not clear what the circumstances are. Discussing that is for another day. But the bottom line is that that happened. And that could be something that may be headed along these lines. Like if Damon disagrees with Arianne's actions, for example, if she does some of the things we suspect, like seduce Aegon and set herself up to be an enemy of Daenerys, I don't know if Damon's going to think that's the smartest call. That may cause a, a rift. I'm not sure if he's going to abandon her. That seems like a bit much because he's not going to switch sides. I don't think, I think that's a bit much, but even that is potentially on the table as a possibility. Also, I, I forgot to mention this when I was talking about Ryan Illyrian, you know, Damon Sand's father. He was also at King's Landing for the trial. He was in Oberyn's party. So, yeah, I don't know if that has any impact on him, but it's just a, a fun little detail to take note of. Let's move on to some of the other characters. Before specifically mentioning any other characters, I think this is where some of Doran's intelligence really shows. Uh, he maybe has shortcomings as a plotter. Certainly, there's things to be said about how he arranged Quentin and sent Quentin off in this party that he wasn't prepared for, which argues against what I'm about to say a little bit, which is that he is clever with who he includes in these groups. I think that's something he has a little more insight into. That's something he's very clever with that he's maybe not as clever with some of the other aspects of intrigue. But I think understanding personalities and how they'll work together, that I think he has a strong handle on because there's a, there's a lot of curiosity here over why Elias Sand was sent and why Damon was sent. And it does seem, whatever your answers are, it's definitely on purpose. It was you know definitely a choice by Doran and Arianne even wonders at it. One that we I really don't know about is Jane Lady Bright. She's hardly speaks, and it's a bit of a 
a vibe of, of Silva Santigar, Nina Rice. That was her best friend, uh, one of the ones implicated in the plotting there. So Silva is now you know, off to marry, uh, I think she's the one, she's the one that married uh, Lord Estermont. So she might be in big trouble right now with the Golden Company on their island. But anyway, that's another story. I don't know that I have much to say about late Jane Lady Bright. She might be just something that comes up later. Do you guys have anything to add about her or about this whole party as a whole? I think the the party as a whole, not so much from Duran's perspective, but it's used early on in the chapter, again, as that mirror. Ariane thinks of the old party, the pre-season party, then she compares it directly to this one. So that's just another marker very quickly of this is not the same thing. This isn't a jaunt off with my friends. She says earlier on that like she can't connect with any of them. They're basically strangers, even Damon to an extent now, and Elia's just a little bit too young. Um, so I, I think it's just another another mark of the change of time, basically, and that this is a new thing we're doing. It's also like a mark of, you know, this is part of your role if you're going to be the heir of Dorne. You don't just get to hang out with your friends all the time. Like, uh, strategic alliances are important. And I assume, you know, that most of these people were selected for good reason. Um, yeah. And you have to be yeah. able to to make those relationships with people who you aren't best friends with from childhood. You know, I think uh, it's interesting. I don't know how closely they're related, but Jane Lady Bright, the Lord Treasurer, I guess Lady Treasurer of Sunspear is related to her as an Alice Lady Bright. Oh. And so in terms of growing up together, I feel like probably that's her mother or something like that. Okay. And that they had a connection there, which makes me wonder what she thinks about her daughter marrying Lord Estermont. It's not a bad marriage, you know, in terms of yeah. he has land. Hmm. And she's probably, I mean, she's certainly not the heir to House Lady Bright. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, yeah, good take. Um, I, I, yeah, well, well, hopefully they'll they'll just be more about her. Maybe there'll be uh, a little more reason for us to take more note of her. But for now, let's move on. Uh, Joss Hood and Garibald Shells are the other two knights in the group. Don't really have much to say about them either. Joe, you have a note here. Yeah, I just think they're they're like the anti demons. Like they make more sense. We don't. To be fair, it's not like we know them particularly well. But so far, they just seem like straight, dependable what you're told guys so maybe that's just their role maybe Duran's thinking okay Damon's got his head on his shoulders he'll know what to do if anything goes wrong the other two will follow orders maybe they're more than that we don't know but so far yeah they seem more like Duran type people just kind of bland they're there to fill their role types it's worth considering because of what we just said about Doran being clever about who he includes in the party but so far I think you're right I don't I don't see any clues what about you Emily is that kind of how you feel about it yeah, I think we just need to see more of them. I think they're there to kind of be a blank slate for what's to come. Right on. One of the few things we see from them is interacting with our next characters, Elias Sand, <laughs> aka Lady Lance. They both they have a brief exchange, and there's just huge Liana vibes. Not just in this, not just with her, but in this chapter in general. Because Ariane has a little bit of that, which will that's more next chapter. Because next chapter, they get taken on their way to their destination, and and she's like, it's sort of ambiguous whether it's a kidnapping, which is very much what happens after the tourney of Hall when Rhaegar and Lyanna means like, was that a kidnapping or... Yeah, so I think that fits really well. But like I said, more on that next chapter, which is next week. So, but we'll focus on what's here for now. Elias Sand, one of the most direct lines to Lyanna is George loves to use precise language to connect characters by using the same phrasing. He uses very specific phrases. You all are very familiar with this concept. We've been over it so many times. You've seen it in the examples. But I like re-explaining it every once in a while just to set the stage. So here's an example. 
Uh, in this chapter, the line is, the girl was mad for horses, which might be why she often smelled like one to the despair of her mother. Bruce Bolton in A Dance with Dragons says about his dead son and then Lyanna, horses. The boy was mad for horses. Lady Dustin will tell you. Not even Lord Rickard's daughter could outrace him, and that one was half a horse herself. And then Valena Tolland in this chapter says to Lady Lance, are you half horse, child? Valena asked, laughing in the yard. Princess, did you bring a stable girl? And then if you recall our Sansa chapter, Elaine chapter, we compared Mia Stone quite a bit to Lyanna. And in doing so, we connected their horse riding and how there's a, a lot to do with that in making that connection. And so Robert Aaron at one point says, I just want a lane. You smell all stinky like a mule. So we have all these like similar <laughs> related points of smelling like a horse or a stable, mad for horses, being half horse. And then, of course, everyone's like, just like, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. You're the lady jouster. And like, yeah, jousting, it's so important for horse, you know, for horsemanship. And it's just like, hello, this is Night of the Laughing Tree vibes, isn't it? Joe, what do you think about all this? Yeah, well, to keep with those vibes, I mean, she does literally say in this chapter that she wants to do some jousting. And <laughs> you know, maybe Liana did do that. I mean, that's exactly what she did do at that tournament. So that's a, another connection there. Um, Elia, she's probably my favorite of the new characters we get across all these preview chapters, to be honest with you. I think, I think she's pretty funny, first off, but she also provides a great opportunity for Ariane to feel older and feel changed because she is older. So she gets to look at, look at the younger person, see that she's grown into a more strained, more serious Martel rather than the other route, which is the kind of wilder sand snake. She actually gets to see that um, this time, which is a bit different to seeing it with someone your own age. Now you can see kind of what where they went, the kind of split in the route there. I like that at that age. Oh, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. And I say she's the older and more strained, but they actually all participate in the same horse race. So it's not <laughs> like she's completely grown up. Um, just to give another Sansa parallel, that's pretty similar to Sansa and uh, Miranda running the gates as well. Yes. Um, the only difference is yeah. Elia gets the Elia gets the W. She beats them. <laughs> but yeah, like I say, it, it just allows her to see that the format the Sand Snakes go through. Like they get to a certain age, they all kind of end up pretty much the same. Maybe Sorella's a bit different, but the other three definitely follow a blueprint. And she can see Elia kind of getting into that age right about now. So it just it just frames things. A little bit differently makes her think of her own role. She's not going to be able to do that. She's got different responsibilities. She's not a sand snake. However much she liked them, however much she really liked Oberyn, she's not one. She's got these other different roles. So that's another growing up, maturing moment like we were talking about earlier. I just think that's another marker off that sheet for this chapter. Felia, yeah, I just I hope we get a lot more of her. I do wonder... Maybe she will, will even get to see her actually ride and joust. Maybe Aegon will throw a celebratory tourney and she'll ride in that. That'd be cool. Yeah, that uh, would be cool. Any opportunity. I agree with you 100%. She's my favorite of the new characters too. For yeah. all the reasons you said and also the mystery <laughs> surrounding her about you know where this could go and the drama that could happen. But yeah, I just genuinely like her a lot. Let me throw you, let me <laughs> throw you guys a curveball based on that take. I like this idea. I hadn't thought about a, t a tournament, but I had thought about what would fit in with the tournament of Hall, which is that what if Aegon decides he likes Elia more than Arianne? Then we have a kind of a reversal of the tournament Hall where <laughs> Rhaegar leaves Elia for Lyanna. Now we have 
maybe we'd have uh, Aegon leaving Arianne for Elia. So it's like Elia is the opposite this time. Do you think it's possible that Arianne would be okay with that because she like Aegon Young Griff is kind of a young boy to her? I don't think so. If she's plan, if she sets her sight on him and wants to like kind of rule through him or a row, then I don't think that I don't think she would like that at all. Well, yeah. John Connington's not having that, is he? That's no way. True. Yeah, that's also no true. chance he's going to. Sorry, he will, he a bastard. Yeah, <laughs> With <a king>. no <laughs> chance. <laughs> um, she is a bit more age appropriate for him, I will say. And, and they are, um, you know, <laughs> they're like. It's kind of interesting. She's. She's. I do 14. think. It, yeah. Yeah. I do think it is likely that we get a tournament. Like, but like if he if he wins King's Landing early enough, like before Daenerys becomes a worry, or at least known to them as a worry, like that would be a thing to do, wouldn't it? Right? We've won, we're back. Uh, this would be a really good way to let everyone know that we're back and come and swear fealty and we can kind of shore up dealings like what Peter Baelish is doing in the Vale. Yes. You hold this Having a massive tournament. thing. Yeah, it would- They've not... It would be They've so- not had a Tony for years now. That would be so and cool. It would line up. We need one. George, George loves to do those, like, connect, like, have a tournament here and a tournament here at the same time, kind of line them up and, like, have a culmination kind of thing like that. And that would be so mm-hmm. fitting to have the, the Winged Knight tournament and then this tournament, like, shortly after or almost parallel. That would be something. Mm-hmm. What else do you think about uh, Lady Lance? Let's throw it back to you, Emily. We've jumped forward on some of these theories, but let's, <laughs> let's pull it back. I've got a few things. I, I want to, you know, note something that Nina wrote actually about, you know, Elia being 14, Wait. same age as Liana yeah. at the tournament of Hall. But it's also the same age that Arianne finds that letter and her life drastically Ooh. changes. So, and, and Sansa is right around that age as well. So this just seems to keep coming up. And I just, I wanted mm. to call that out. Oh, yeah. I, I also noted later on in the chapter after the, the, the race, they, we see a bit of banter between Elias Sand and some of the other traveling companions and some of the only dialogue that some of them have. Uh, but Arianne steps in to shut it down. It's kind of an interesting twist, pushing her from the one making the clever quips and being coy to the one doing the chiding. Throughout the chapter, we see Arianne and the others in the party grow increasingly vexed by Elias' insistence that she's Lady Lance. Mm-hmm. And this all culminates eventually in a pretty funny scene on the Peregrine, the ship that they're taking, uh, in which Arianne's thinking, Arianne had heard enough. You might be a Lance, but you are no lady. Go below and stay there until we reach land. Doesn't really sound like the Arianne from from Feast. Uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of funny. Yeah, it sounds like a mom, right? It's, well, I mean, like a, a righteous mom, like she's right there. Yeah, I had to get the Mother's Day angle in here somehow. <laughs> Uh, fittingly, let's let's move away from Elias Sand with one last thought, and that is, uh, and it's a thought that will nicely segue us into the next section. And that's given that name, Elias is not exactly a name you would associate with, uh, you know, long life and and prosperity. Maybe this character is quite doomed because she's been named for a character who was also very doomed, and uh, especially if she's going to be associated with the character of Aegon the Sixth, who also seems rather not long for this world and you know surviving the whole story maybe not likely yeah he he might but you know uh it doesn't look great for him the thing that will probably kill them if anything fire dragon fire is a not unlikely uh method of death for one or both of them so let's talk about the dragon dreams of tiora talent it was then that pasty pudgy tiora raised her eyes from the cream cakes on her plate 
It is dragons. Dragons? said her mother. Tiora, don't be mad. I'm not. They're coming. How could you possibly know that? Her sister asked with a note of scorn in her voice. One of your little dreams? Tiora gave a tiny nod, chin trembling. They were dancing in my dream. And everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. That phrase is used a lot, not just dancing with dragons, the title of the Civil War and the book, but I pulled a a selection of quotes here. Uh, Beans, the sellsword of the windblown, told Quentin, then it'll be on to Marine to dance with the Dragon Queen. Barristan, referring to Quentin, he should have stayed a frog. Not all men are meant to dance with dragons. Danny in Daznak's pit. Below, she saw men whirling, wreathed in flame, hands up in the air as if caught in the throes of some mad dance. The snail, of all people, in the mystery night. <laughs> the snail may leave a trail of slime behind him, but a little slime will do a man no harm. Whilst if you dance with dragons, you must expect to burn. And remember, too, that it's true for dragons facing dancing with dragons as well. When dragons fight each other, it, it rarely goes well for either of them. Only when one of them is much bigger than the other. And even when that happens, well, after this storm, after this, the storm broke and the dragons danced and died. So basically the lesson from these lines, these metaphors, is that it pretty much never goes well for anyone when the dragons <laughs> dance, especially the ones who are uh, against the dragons, the literal dragons. But in this case, dragon is being, the term is being interchanged with literal dragons and you know dragon contenders for the throne. And uh, that makes it a little bit confusing, but it all kind of points to the same thing, like doom, death, burning, and, and not good outcomes for these characters that are up against it. So that doesn't really bode well for Ariane or any of these people that are around her or Aegon. Yeah, we get some good old kind of Bran slash Lewin vibes of the, the far-seeing child who makes outrageous claims that doesn't seem like they can be real and all the adults say, no, 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 like you've had too many sweets off, you go to bed and that, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I love how many layers this can work on. You touched it there. This could be Aegon versus Danny. This could be physical dragon fights. Um, or the one that strikes hardest with me is, like you say, the fallout that the people will suffer because um, that's very much the point or one of the main points of the series is the Game of Thrones and the effect it has on the small folk. Well, we've seen plenty of that, but the uh, I think the idea here is uh, if you think you've seen it bad, wait until there's dragons fighting and then you're really <laughs> going to see what suffering looks like. It that can kind always of thing. get worse. That's another theme we've, we've yeah. pounded away on, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think it links very well with the end of the chapter when Ariane starts kind of questioning who Daenerys is and how she's showing us really, again, that, like we said at the beginning, the question that everyone is going to have to answer is, is what do we think of Daenerys? Are we going to side with her? Is she mad for lack of a better word or whatever, you, however you want to frame it? And uh, she's going to be given because she's coming from behind, she's in second place, she's going to not be given the chance to say her side of the story. People will write her story for her first. Aegon will get here, and whether it's Tim or it's John Connington or whoever else, as soon as they're aware Daenerys is coming west, they're going to start saying things and saying, no, 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 she's not real, or no, she killed her husband, or whatever it is. Yeah. We've seen that propaganda already all over Slaver's Bay, and well, most of Essos already. That's only going to spread, and I think we're getting the, the first hints of that in this chapter. It's going to get much, much worse throughout the book. It's going to be really annoying to us because we know the truth and we know 
that's not not the deal, but the west of Westeros yeah. doesn't. So I think that really speaks to yeah, this dance could be. I mean, we know how many different factors can go into it of Danny wanting what is hers, what she's spent her whole life aiming towards, someone's beaten her to it. She doesn't know whether he's real or not. I don't think that gets discussed on us. Someone probably at some point will plant the idea in her head that he's not real. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this could be a, a conflict on many, many different levels. And I think Ariane's just giving us the slightest hint of that. I think it's going to be a much, much bigger, much more wide scale question that's going to come to everyone. Yeah. And uh, you make a good point too about the, we, we, t- we touch on it every once in a while about the lies people will tell about Daenerys. They'll be easy lies to tell because people will want to believe them because of they don't want to be ruled by a woman. They don't like the association with Dothraki and eunuchs and all that mm. other stuff because they're you know xenophobic or what have you. But also, um, it will work really well for uh, th- because they have the best in the business at doing that. Varus, right? Varus is backing Aegon, and Absolutely. who is better at propaganda and understanding the power of it than him? And reverse propaganda. He's of course setting up Aegon to look perfect, so he can easily. Maybe not easily, but suspect that he'll do the opposite <laughs> to Daenerys. Real quick, let's talk about how this is even possible. How is it possible that Tiora Tallinn has dragon dreams? Well, first of all, let's take a note of how close they are. I've touched on this briefly before. Ghost Hill is only three days' ride from Sunspear, so there's proximity. And we know we've talked about how there's a, a vassal relationship there. We know that Daenerys Targaryen, not this Daenerys Targaryen, but the one associated with the Water Gardens, the one who married Maron Martell, had a lot of kids. Those kids didn't, like, remarry up in the north. They're just, they remarried into Dorne, presumably. Very possibly one of, or multiples, married into House Tallinn, which would be how this dragon blood, these dragon dreams were able to pass down into someone that on the surface, doesn't seem connected to House Targaryen. But it's not a stretch at all to see how that bloodline could have come in. And we've seen this sort of distant bloodline picking up of dragon dreams. For example, a character that we mentioned earlier, Daemon II, Tar- uh, Blackfire, had dragon dreams, and his Targaryen heritage would have, would be, would have been a few generations back. So hmm. we've seen that work. And that is very relevant here in this chapter because we get that moment where... Lady Tollins like, we've got the history books here if you want to read them. And she's like, nah. We're like, no, read the history books. <laughs> what did You had a similar reaction, didn't you, Emily, to that? <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I'm, I'm so, I mean, I think all of us who love these books are such big readers that we were probably screaming and shaking our fists <laughs> when we read that. I wanted to put deep lore there. But I think it was probably included to kind of counterbalance all the progress we're seeing from Ariane here that we've talked about many times already today. Mm. She's growing and she sees herself differently now, but she's still the Ariane with very little intellectual curiosity and, and no interest in reading. Could you imagine like Tyrion or Samwell or even Daenerys who, you know, has sought out more about her history, turning down the offer to see those books by comparison? I just, I couldn't see that. Yeah. <laughs> now, you also mention here this whole idea of taking the wrong side and how that is a problem. And that fits really well with the Talon histories because what we saw from the Talon histories from we know from World of Ice and Fire and, and such is that, and um, Fire and Blood, is that the Talons were notable amongst a lot of Dornish houses for standing up to the Targaryens. So they have done this whole we don't have dragons, you do sort of fight before. So they might be a little more open to it than, than we readers think they should be. 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, it makes sense with someone in this history to, you know, I guess can be a little bit more concerned about dragons and being like able to contextualize the threat of them a little bit more. The idea that Ariane is even considering, you know, joining the side that doesn't have dragons seems a little odd to us, I think, especially knowing that Clinton's over there. But it shows how much that the years since the last dragons in Westeros have caused people to kind of forget their history and and perhaps history will repeat itself a little bit here. The inclusion just feels like a warning that, that the people of Westeros who are going to be aware of Danny's dragons might still underestimate them. It's really hard to like conceptualize, you know, what like an atom bomb is if you've never seen one or heard of one or or had one exist in your lifetime before. You know, the dragons are somewhat similar. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, Nina mm-hmm. makes note of the fact that House Tolland is one of the few houses that we know of, if not the only house, that has changed its sigil outright. We've seen modifications to a sigil before, but this is a complete change. They had a ghost sigil before. The house is, the, the castle is called Ghost Hill, but it's now a dragon biting its own tail in memory of this one of a particular incident that the Tollins were able to trick Aegon himself by sending out a fool to duel him. And uh, Aegon wasn't too happy about that. There's that pride again, right? He felt like he was being made mock of. And, uh, well, Joe, you have a take on this. You're a little surprised. Yeah, I'm just surprised it's been allowed to exist for, for like 300 years. I'm surprised like a Mago or, or uh, Aegon IV, especially being like super anti-Dornish, didn't be like, we can't have someone like literally mocking us on their sigil because they are, as you say, they're citing like one of the, major incidents of Targaryen incompetence, not only just that whole war of them like using guerrilla tactics and melting away, but this specific incident you're talking about of the the fool dressed up in the armor. Like in my mind, it's like the cartoon where there's like two kids in a trench coat fighting <laughs> Aegon and he's like, oh, I won. Oh, uh, not really. So I'm just surprised it's been allowed to stay around that long. You got me and with that I one. think I'm it is... So hard at that. <laughs> I think that's another uh, to what I was saying earlier about Dorm being quite divided. Like there, there is anti-Targaryen or anti-Dragon thoughts and feelings still going on here. Like the Tolans are they're obedient bunch. Like Nymella did delay Balan Swan, and she did drink the wine at the feast and dance, and she's helping Ariane out here. But that only goes so far. So that's something else for them to consider. Is okay, maybe it is your nephew. But we still don't like Targaryens, and like we didn't ever want to get married into them and whatever else. This is a your family thing. So I think it's just another signal that you need to be watching the rest of the Dornish because I think there is something kind of uh, someone says that like they're simmering. I think Hotar must say that tensions are simmering at some point, something like that. Yeah, and they they are. So yeah, I'm just interested, and I also want to know what the sigil was before. Um, I think it's something to do with a ghost. Yeah. I want to know where the ghosts come from. Is, is it just something to do with these white cliffs yeah. or is it something more related to Tiora and ability? Like, did one of them see ghosts in the back in the day or something like yeah, that? Is it, what, what does a Westerosi ghost look like? That's, yeah, I'm curious about that too. I wonder if we'll get some more history. Maybe, maybe uh, Fire and Blood 2 will give us a little detail there. This could be thought of. This invasion by Aegon the Sixth could be thought of as the Sixth Blackfire Rebellion. And Nina writes how it has a lot in common with the fourth and fifth. There's some elements that, that remind us of that. In the fourth one, it was Damon the Third Blackfire and the Golden Company landing on Massey's Hook, which is that bottom little tip that wraps around uh, the Blackwater Bay, the southern point. And they 
didn't get very far. They didn't get a lot of local support. They were smashed under by the armies led by Aegon V. That's Egg, of course, and Dunk was right there with him. Dunk himself slew Damon straight up. And the fifth Blackfire Rebellion, the Golden Company had Maylis Blackfire, and they took the Stepstones and were kind of working their way to Westeros before Barris and Selmy put an end to that with, with some help. But this time, they skipped the, the Stepstones, which is smart, and go for the Stormlands, which also maybe they don't have a lot of local support, but they have a much better opportunity to gain local support because this timing is just way better. The fourth Blackfire Rebellion was timed when the realm was pretty stable. Um, there had been some issues, but nothing like this, nothing like the War of Five Kings that just happened. So it's a much uh, much better timing. And of course, that's partly thanks to Tyrion and convincing them that now is the right time, and partly because he's right. It, it is The death of Tywin is a pretty big deal, and while Cersei's in charge, that's also a pretty big deal. So, But as we've said at the beginning, as we've been talking about all throughout, She's not really thinking about these other players in Westeros. She's mostly thinking about Quentin and Daenerys. Here is another quote. Perhaps Daenerys realized that once her brother was crowned and wed to me, she would be doomed to spend the rest of her life sleeping in a tent and smelling like a horse. She is the Mad King's daughter, the princess said. How do we know? We cannot know, Sir Damon said. We can only hope. Now, that's the actual last line of the chapter, and it's pretty powerful. As we've been saying throughout this chapter, it links back to Arianne's last chapter in A Feast for Crows, which is a long, it's been a long time coming. In between that, we've had the Griffin Reborn chapter, which Nina writes, this is sort of a direct sequel to that chapter, if we're following the threads a bit. It's not told from John's perspective, obviously, but does follow up on the Aegon story. It tells us what's happening. It gives us more information about what they've been doing. And yeah, Joe, you have uh, a lot of takes here on Quentin. Let me turn it over to you. Yeah, well, I, I firstly like Nina's note there, uh, like it being a direct sequel, which it is. And it speaks to what we said at the beginning about this chapter having the responsibility of merging the two storylines. Like, this is why Dawn was introduced in the first place. When, it, when George had that big expansion of Feast and we got the Iron Islands, we got Dawn, this is what it's been leading to. Like this point is where they, these things start to meet. This is why they're here. So it's really, really important. But I think Quentin and Daenerys, uh, they actually kind of dance together more in this chapter, even more than they did in actual, like in real life, really. They work really well thematically. The ghost of Quentin, we've already seen, he's all over this chapter. He's a question that neither of the Martells really want to address, but they, like, he keeps coming up, but they really don't want to look at it too hard. Uh, Ariane, she knows that Duran is thinking about his son and where he is, but he won't say it. Maybe he's possibly thinking about what he's doing with his daughter at the same time. Because if if he thinks too much about what happened to Quentin, he might not send Ariane because he, like, there's too much risk going on. So she herself has similar struggles. She has to convince herself there's not any bad blood and she does love him and all these things. But she also admits they don't quite have the bond you should. And like throughout, again, there's just these questions of where is he and why hasn't he shown up yet? And the obvious and ironically true answer is the one that they don't want to speak into reality. I, I'm not going to think that he might be dead because then he might actually be dead. And with that, that links into the questions of Daenerys towards the end of the chapter that we just said. Has Aegon already defeated on? Has Aegon already defeated her? Has he got the jump on her? Is she not coming at all? 
And then that puts a whole new angle on the decisions that Duran and Ariane have to make. Like you, you don't want to sign up with the non-Dragon Targaryen if the free Dragon Targaryen is coming around the corner and is pissed about it because that goes against your whole <laughs> thing of... Like his whole thing is we're not going to get into the game if we can't win. I don't want all these people to die. Well, if Danny really wants that chair back, then that's exactly what's going to happen. So you have to be sure which one you're going you're gonna to back. But at the same time, he doesn't know that Daenerys is coming. So this might be your one chance. This might be the only Targaryen that's coming. And you do have this emotion, emotional connection or this familial connection, if he's real, that it is your nephew. So if you don't go, then everyone's going to be like, it's your nephew and you're not supporting him. Well, when we win the throne, we're coming back for you then. That is, like, there's so many different angles that they really have to dance on this, this knife edge so what's Duran going to do? Is he going to commit to the dragon without dragons, without this multiple force, this force multiplier dragons to go, or is he going to go against his philosophy? They've been preaching for like 17 years. Again, don't play unless you think you're going to win. But Danny can just throw the whole board yeah. completely asunder. And that's without him yet knowing what happens to Quentin. I think we all know when he finds out, that's going to be a big, big turning point for Dawn for the Martells, for Duran and his approach specifically and these choices he's going to make. Maybe he loses all restraints. He's like, right, I'm all in. We're going against Daenerys. I don't care how many drinks she's got. <laughs> My son's been burned, whatever else. It depends how it's yeah. told to him. But we think it's probably not going to be told the correct way. So he probably is going to be, he's going to be thinking like that. He's definitely going to be looking at this mission they sent Ariane off on differently. He's probably going to be regretting that if he learns that Quentin's died. And yeah, it just comes down to they're all, both of them, on a knife edge. And it's really just impossible to guess. They don't have enough information. Even when Ariane gets there, they're not going to have enough information because even John Connington and Egan don't know what Daenerys is doing. Eventually, she will come and just change everything. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you, uh, I want to refer to something Emily said before about how you can't, they can't even conceive of the dragons, like what, how they, pertain to war because it's been so long and then she, so mm -hmm. in addition to Ariane sort of just like not considering a lot of the other players she's not considering what the players relative strengths are militarily that's not like where her mind goes <laughs> and that's just not part of her calculus with whether she's just totally thinking about where she wants to be where how she wants what outcome she wants and not how dangerous it will be to be against Daenerys <laughs> Yeah, to her credit, she probably hasn't gotten a ton of education on this, especially for so long. I'm thinking that Clinton would be, you know, in that position. But uh, that's a good yeah, point. I, think. I also keep thinking about the line <laughs> that Aegon says, uh, I'm the only dragon you need. And like how laughably <laughs> dumb that is when you consider that the very real actual dragons. I, I kind of wonder if that line will come back up again and how it would be received by some of these characters. You know who else said a line very similar to that is Daron the first, the young dragon. And they were like, we, we couldn't invade Dorne. We don't have dragons. He's like, I'm the dragon. So it's very, very similar line, very similar age. <laughs> and that dude died young too. So, hmm. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about them not being aware of like, what dragons really mean. But over in Essos, like when the, when Tyrion's going down the Rhoyne and we're in that area, like it's hammered into us a lot, <laughs> especially in dance, that they they do remember. But yeah, even though it's way way further back for them. Good point. Westeros has had them comparatively like yesterday compared to over there, and they seem mm -hmm. to have forgot a lot more. So I think that, that's an interesting point you bring up, Aziz, and just how 
how quickly they've forgotten or how it's not quite sunk into them or they've chosen to forget a weather and they're not nearly as prepared for what dragons can do. But whereas like Slaver's Bay and Roy, and they're like, oh no, we remember. We, we don't mess yeah. with them, that type of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Dorne's track record has been a little bit better and I don't think most of the Dornish have seen Heron Hall, which I think would make an impact. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to say Heron Hall is the one. Like some of the <laughs> Dornish... True would may have seen that. And that's actually an interesting question. I'm going to jump ahead to this. I wonder why Doran, and thinking about his party of who he included in this group, I wonder why he didn't include someone that would have known John Connington, like someone older that would have actually had direct experience with the man. Because surely there's someone in Doran that dealt with John Connington. I guess that either didn't come up or it wasn't, didn't, Doran didn't think it was important after all. It could have been someone he didn't trust. You know, okay. only people like he has to really yeah, he, trust yeah. someone. He didn't have someone that he trusted. That's a good point. Yeah, it's entirely possible. My mind went to the same place. Yeah. Mm, very good. Okay. Other things that might be foreshadowing and other things that we can talk about, uh, general predictions for what we think is coming, other uh, sort of situations that are clearly are interesting, but uh, more in terms of what they're setting up, not in terms of what where we know they're going. First of all, we've covered the Dane stuff elsewhere. We've got a couple episodes on the history of House Dane and the Dane and the Dane characters current. So I, I direct you to those for more specifics about the history and about Dark Star and all that. But in terms of what we can expect going forward, here's a very interesting quote. And I, re, I implore you all to consider the way George sometimes plays with gender when he's making semi-prophetic statements. Is that what Darkstar is? A man? Sir Damon grimaced. A man would not have done what he did to Princess Marcella. Sir Gerald is more a viper than your uncle ever was. Prince Oberyn could see that he was poison. He said so more than once. It's just a pity that he never got around to killing him. Poison, thought Arianne. Yes. Pretty poison, though. So, no man can stand against Hotar? I mean, I don't suspect, like, Obara's gonna beat him in one-on-one combat, but poison is pretty much how he's dealt with in the show. So it's definitely possible. I mean, you're thinking about, yeah, who's going to beat Hota? Well, maybe that no one does. It's just like not directly anyway. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely this thought that Darkstar might turn the Sand Snakes to his side and be, and that would explain why Oberyn or Doran thinks he's so dangerous and it would it would set up a lot that sort of lines up with where the TV show went. Now, the TV show's not a great great basis for Dorn. Uh, so let's not go too far with that. But it's at least worth considering a little bit. Do you guys have any thoughts on this prediction or what you think might happen with Hota or Darkstar? I feel concerned for Hota in this situation where, you know, he's going to confront someone who, you know, George has told us to be more concerned about Darkstar than I think we are. And mm-hmm. I think Obara is such a wild card that it could easily go from being Obara and Hota versus Darkstar to all of a sudden Hota's on his own. I think poison's definitely an option, you know, whether it be in a cup or on the end of a blade, we don't know, but, um, you know, it's definitely, definitely a little foreshadowing potential here. Yeah, I think, I think you're right as well to be, you know, just to think about the character Hota is. He doesn't seem like the kind of character that's going to be developed for the long term. Um, he's very observant. But like in terms of his own character, we know, you know, that hasn't been super developed. Um, I still find him fascinating because that simplicity is a really interesting contrast to all the other POVs. It's like he's the, he's the clean slate and that helps you, just shows you, like when you read a yeah. Hota chapter next to a Cersei chapter, it really show, just 
drives home how incredibly rich the Cersei chapters are. And uh, while the Hotel chapters are, are, are no slouch either, but there's just not very many of them. And yeah, anyway. Sure. I think the more that I'm told that like no one could kill this person or that they're never going to die, like tomorrow I'm like, okay, yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just set up that this guy's not beatable. So clearly he, he is. Right? No. <laughs> same, with, well, same with the mountain, I guess. Emily, you're, I know you're more of the, the Lord of the Rings head than I am, but the, like, the no man can stand against him. That reminds me of, I don't even know the character's name, but the, the, the end of Return of the King, where, the where she fights the Witch King. Is that, yeah, yeah. sure, why not? Um, it's uh, that that's kind a of hotly thing. debated topic in the, the Lord of the Rings fandom. Oh, I don't know what controversy <laughs> I started, but either way, it makes you think, like he's being obvious, oh, no man can kill him. Okay, so let's let's pick some women. Let's let's have Brienne kill him. <laughs> I'd sell for that. That'd be cool. Let's, uh, I mean, Gilly's not that far away. Give Gilly. Yeah, a kill. give Gilly. Be... <laughs> Send little Sam to do I it. He'll never see one. <laughs> no. Little Aemon, little yeah. uh, Aemon Steel song. You know who is also not a man? A dragon. <laughs> That's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then I love how this is just played with. Damon's like, is that what he is? A man? He's playing with this concept of like. <laughs> like these titles and yes. and all that. So yeah, it really feels like George is getting sneaky here. Well, Ariane calls him, well, she names him his sin earlier in the chapter. Mm. So it's a really cool way of referring to him if he's just like, yeah, just like this human form of sin. He's just, if he is one of the rare characters who's just like core, rotten, bad, <laughs> and uh, we've just got to deal with him going forward. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's talk about these hidden armies in the passes here. Yeah, there's a lot of emphasis on the positioning of these armies in the Boneway and the Prince's Pass, but, uh, you know, it's not that simple. It's not that clear-cut. Um, Arianne thinks this. In the Boneway and the Prince's Pass, two Dornish hosts had masked. And that rhymes. And there they sat, sharpening their spears, polishing their armor, dicing, drinking, quarreling, their numbers dwindling by the day, waiting, waiting, waiting for the Prince of Dorne to loose them on the enemies of House Martell. Waiting for the dragons, for fire and blood. For me, one word from Ariane and those armies would march, so long as that word was dragon. If instead the word she sent was war, Lord Ironwood and Lord Fowler and their armies would remain in place. The Prince of Dorne was nothing if not subtle. Here, war meant wait. Real quick, does, wouldn't it have been easier to just not use the word dragon at all? Ro- like, actually, we got a question even... from Rolling that okay. was like, "This seems dumb. This seems like unnecessarily like, sneaky, and it could easily go wrong." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I completely agree with that. <laughs> yes, that's great. That leads right into what I'm thinking. Actually, Perfect. so you know, uh, Ar- Arian's always known that her father, and to an extent, you know, his bannermen uh, are patient and cautious enough to follow him. Anyway, she puts that understanding in a new context uh, as a tactician here. But uh, this is also just ambiguous enough that the use of the word dragon that could also fit for Aegon, though it's much more likely that we're talking about literal dragons here. It's just another way to frame this predicament that Dorne is in. Their cautious plan has been upset so many times, uh, some of those times they don't even know about yet. <laughs> Maybe a few years ago, the choice between Viserys or Danny versus Aegon would have been much easier to make because of Aegon's clear acclaim and his blood ties to House Martell, but... The wisdom of not entirely trusting Aegon to be real, coupled with the acknowledgement of the raw power, even if they underpower it, of an actual dragon or three is interesting here. The passage that we just read also helps demonstrate that it's not just Doran being cautious. There are other major players in Dorne here that are cautious as well. You know, certainly enough to sit there and wait on his orders. We were seeing that as like a little bit more 
dovish than hawkish, I guess. Um, Non-Dornish characterizations of Dorn and, and their people often tend to say things like fiery or snake-like or untrustworthy or hot-tempered, uh, things that we've seen attributed mostly to Oberyn and his daughters. But it's nice to have this conversation that there are actually plenty of Dornishmen who align enough with Doran's caution that him staying in power all this time makes sense. And it also subtly undercuts some of the claims that the Sand Snakes made earlier in um, in Feast uh, that Doran is crying out for war. You know, I have no doubt, like Joe said before, that Doran isn't this monolith in terms of their political positions, but this speaks to the idea that Doran still has some control and that uh, his politics still rule the day here. Yeah, there's, you're right to point out that there's definitely a lot of people, as, as again, Hota's ob- observancy really helps us there. He paid very, uh, very close attention to who toasted the king, Tommen, mm-hmm. and who turned over their glasses. And the ones who didn't drink and turned over their glasses, those are the ones that are the restless ones, the ones who were not part of this monolith behind, uh, behind Doran. So you're right. And then Darkstar might be the guy that, that triggers a lot of that. Uh, that might be what he's over, or why Doran sees him as dangerous is that he's this could be the spark that unites or triggers that unhappy element. Yeah, I think that's very likely. Like, even geographically, like they're on opposite ends of Dawn. There's people far away out of Doran's control. I think the these two armies being there is really, really interesting. Like in the quote, it says it's Lords, uh, Ironwood, and Fowler. So you think if they do get um, activated and they do come up, the Dornish finally come out of Dawn, which doesn't happen very often historically, like only at like major, major events this has happened before. So that on its own is a mark of the times if they start marching out. But if those two come up, then assumedly we'll get to meet them at some point, and especially in terms of... Um, I forget his first name now, but Lord Ironwood. That'd be really cool to get to meet him because he's got his own bad news to hear as well. Oh yeah, and like it's just, again, I, I keep coming back to it, but this this wider scope of Dornish politics, like just in this chapter alone, think how many different surnames we've said that don't ever really come up, like Ironwood and Fowler. And, um, I can't even say it, like Alirian, Alirian, that's it, mm-hmm. um, and Toland, and like we're just considering them more now than we ever have before because they might be really important and. Uh, yeah, like I said earlier, it's just they could be, they could all be together. They could be split uh, on the Targaryens or whatever Duran chooses. It could go either way. It is one of those things where you just wonder is there actually time to cover all this? Because there's so much to cover. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I'm hoping we at least get some of it and we at least get to meet some of these characters like Nyanwood or Fowler because it would be really interesting to see the, the Dornish politics at work. Now, there's no indication in the final chapter in Kevin's epilogue that there that these the, the Iron Throne faction, the Lannisters and the Tyrells, have any idea about these armies massed in the passes. So they seem to be concealed for the moment. But Varys may know. And he's a real interesting person to consider here, given we just talked about how these this password business is real sketchy. Maybe Varys could trigger something by sending a false message. It's hard to predict what Varys might do, but just consider his cleverness and in the midst of this situation and your head might spin a little bit and what he might do. But it's not just these armies in the passes. There's also navies in the seas. These are a little less controlled uh, directly by the situation, but they're certainly something that has to be cons- uh, considered. You're wise not to come by sea. Since the Redwind fleet passed through the Stepstones, those waters are crawling with strange sails. 
all the way north to the Straits of Tarth and Shipbreakers Bay. Meerman, Volantes, Lyseni, even reavers from the Iron Islands. Some have entered the Sea of Dorne to landmen on the south shore of Cape Wrath. We found a good fast ship for you as your father commanded. But even so, be careful. So this, we don't have to, we don't have a lot to say about this because we've covered it elsewhere, but it's just important to note that these, the setup is happening here because there's obviously, yes, the Red Wine Fleet is a big deal. It's headed for Old Town right now. And we know that's going to be, well, it's going to be interesting. We don't know exactly. And one of the things it relates to is this next quote. I'll just read this one. And Kraken's off the broken arm, pulling under crippled galleys, said Valina. The blood draws them to the surface, our maester claims. That is a hugely important quote in terms of trying to decode what the heck Euron is doing with all the priests on prows and the potential to spill blood in the sea and then maybe scarper off while the Krakens come and take out the fleet of the arbor. So, whew, that's all very interesting. And this is George just doing his parallel work. He sets up other chapters with this, but it's, it's very related. I mean, this, these guys are by the sea. They know what's going on. We know who this Lord of the Waters character is. We've talked about that. It's almost certainly Orane. Do you guys have anything to add to the navies and the Krakens? Uh, I, I think it's just another... Uh, another indicator of like the merging Westeros and Essos are, are merging more and more now you're seeing the Dicene you're seeing even Volantines coming all the way over that's only going to happen more and, and it touches to what you said earlier Aziz about how Aegon's managed to come over with essentially Westerosi people like half the Golden Company they do have associated with them but they're much more acceptable in general whereas Daenerys is going to mainly come with like Dothraki and Unsullied and all these people that uh, Westeros is probably not as eager to accept. So I think this is just another indicator that this is the new era that we're getting into, that this is just going to happen more and more. It is a war zone. It is busy, busy. The main thing I uh, take away from it, I just think Lord of the Waters is a rubbish name to give yourself. Like, <laughs> like he's settled on Torturer's Deep as well. You've got a cool cave you're, you're manned up in. You can call yourself the Lord of the Waters. It sounds like a like a bladder problem. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And of course, one other big thing coming is reactions to Quentin's death. We we briefly touched on Doran and what he might do, but y'all pointed out other people are going to react to this too, not just Arianne, but Lord Ironwood, who knew him very well because he was basically fostered there. And not to mention the members of his party that died, Cletus Ironwood and, and the rest. I think so much depends on how the information gets rolled out. Yeah. You know, I can see so many different reactions based on, you know, are we getting the facts or are we getting rumor off of a ship that kind of heard something? I think the reaction, once more actual information is available, um, is certainly going to push Dorn into Aegon's arms a lot more than they, than they maybe would otherwise choose to do. Arianne may, may make that decision for them, so it becomes irrelevant. We'll see, but I think, you know, we've got kind of two father figures for Quentin here who are both going to have a really hard time with this of there was this tact and, you know, where is your honor? And <laughs> you're, you're supposed to rule us, but, you know, this was not an honorable choice that you made. And, you know, you, you, you didn't get a letter. You didn't even try to explain yourself. I, I just don't see it, it going well. I, I could see a lot of kind of parallels to um, Aegon the Conqueror having trouble with Dorne. Mm-hmm. Well said. Okay, let's talk about some other parallels and themes. Um, here's another quote. War is coming, thought Arianne, and this time Dorne will not be spared. Doom and death are coming, Hilaria Sand had warned them before she took her own leave from Prince Duran. This time my little, for my little snakes to scatter, 
the better to survive the carnage. Yeah, that's a really interesting because Anina writes how this is similar to Rob's plan. Don't keep all your, uh, all your treasures in one purse. You only make it easier for those who would rob you. And it's also very much a contrast to the opposite of the pack survives. But, but the lone wolf dies, the pack survives. But that's a, that's a metaphor for winter. This is war, and this is exactly what you do. It is better to scatter during war to, to maybe make it more likely that someone survives. And it's also exactly what OSHA decided was best for Brandon Rickon to not be together. So this is very true, when, especially when you're an heir to a great house. Separating them makes a lot of sense. We saw in the Dance of the Dragons, young Aegon and Viserys were sent overseas. That didn't work out so well, but it was probably a good idea at the time. So this is very much uh, a thing we've seen before, but it's kind of sad, right? Because families, you want them to stay together. And, and in a time like this, without technology, it's hard for them to reunite, even with their privileges of being noble born and all that. What do you, this, this is very much a moment for us to bring up Ilaria as well, because she's super important. And she's one of the few characters that, bears the standard of peace, right? Like un, unashamedly and aggressively almost, as much as she can be given that she doesn't have a lot of power. Yeah, well, like you say, Ilaria, I'm glad she gets some shine here because she is always very wise. She's pretty much always on the money. Uh, we had that great, like only a tiny little speech from her in uh, in dance, but it was brilliant. Uh, it's one of my favorites, but it does, as you say, it really gets through to us how devastating this kind of thing can be and, and she's thinking forward she's thinking of this a lot earlier than most people but others will probably start having a, a very similar choices to make and all those kind of things it, it's hard for us to really relate to it like normally you think danger you gather people you try and protect them but because she knows war well she knows exactly what's coming well she's like essentially convinced that she is going to lose children. So she's trying to minimize the hurt and play the odds. And uh, well, I'd rather lose one in one place, like you said, very similar to what Rob, Rob was thinking. I'd rather lose one in one place than four uh, altogether or whatever else. And that's it's just unimaginable to us. It's, it's horrific. And again, it just re-cements uh, re the pressure that's on Ariane here to decide something that will hopefully avoid that. I know Ariane's not thinking of it literally in those terms, but that is the case. Right on. Anything to add about Ilaria, Emily? Yeah, I just want to add some like historical context. I was just reading um, the hardcore history book that just came out, uh, The End is Always Near. And they make a good point in that book about how it's a really modern concept to just expect all your children to survive. So I think, you know, her being cautious and being wise about this is actually a much more realistic uh, in-world reaction uh, Someone in the chat, uh, what's that? Dornish Dame had mentioned, you know, Tyrion had wanted to separate Cersei, uh, Cersei's children in the run-up to the Blackwater, oh, and Cersei freaks out about that. But I think Ilaria here is being much more cautious and wise and realistic to the setting of the time. Where, yeah. You know, so there's a lot of death and childbirth and a lot of war, and, you know, hopefully your children all survive, but uh, losing one isn't the the same level of devastation I think we feel yeah. in modern times. Of course, uh, as it turns out, Cersei was right, wasn't she? <laughs> 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 Maybe for the wrong reason, but uh, <laughs> didn't work out for Marcella going to Dord. Yeah. <laughs> Nina also makes note of the group of seven riders here. This is a common, sort of common number. We have the seven who rode during the dance. Uh, we have 
Rhaegar and his six companions riding to meet Lyanna, Ned and his six companions riding to Dorne to rescue her. And again, here, this is a sort of a, as Nina writes, a spiritual undoing of the Queenmaker plot where she's trying to, you know, unseat her own father. Now she's, you know, instead of trying to unseat, crown a Baratheon queen, she's trying to like help, help overthrow <laughs> a Baratheon king and uh, do all this other stuff. And, and instead of traveling to the Hellholt with her six companions then to crown Marcella, now she's traveling them to meet Aegon. And um, Guilty Undertaker makes a note here that Doran sent six people with Quentin. It was Quentin and five companions. Well, that's, that's why it didn't work. <laughs> you yeah. needed that seventh person, clearly. So, one of the really overarching themes here that pervades this chapter, both in a direct manner and an indirect manner, is the, la- is the information. We know Ariane is operating on false information. We know Doran is operating on false information, yet they're a big point here. The whole point of this mission is to learn more about what's happening, to clear up these falsehoods. And it's a big question of whether they will. There's this quote here. Send a raven whenever you have news, Prince Duran told her. But report only what you know to be true. We are lost in fog here, besieged by rumors, falsehoods, and travelers' tales. I dare not act until I know for a certainty what is happening. Well, given that last line, he's never going to act because he's never going to know for a certainty what's happening. But hey, that wouldn't be too strange for Doran, would it? Uh, mm, ah. <laughs> oh, burn. Oh, yeah. Throwing shade at Doran. Well, I just, I like that he's hitting it. Like, you're right. That's a pipe dream. It's never going to happen. But I just like that he's recognizing the the situation. In this type of society, it's always a problem. But the flurry of activity around Westeros at the moment is, is ridiculous right now. I, I think it's way, way past what we saw in the first three books. And that was a lot. Like If you consider Robert's reign, in general, that was a pretty quiet time for like over a decade. Not actually all that much happened. It was pretty stable for all its other faults. Then we had the first three books, and that seemed like a lot happened, a lot changed, which it did. But now we're going to get even more. We're going to see even more, I think. And it's just impossible. It would be impossible to keep up if everyone was telling the truth. Yeah. If there was no lying going on, that would be hard enough just because of the logistics of it. And this, I feel like as we're going through these preview chapters, I, I know everyone scraps and scrolls. This is coming up every week, it seems like. like on, on different scales, you can talk about Tyrion and the Yonkish army and how their communication is messed up and it's just not going to work. You can talk about it in. Um, you, you said earlier about Peter Baelish cutting off communication and you can say and Theon and Stannis and not knowing what's going on at Winterfell and no one knows about John yet and all these other things. It's literally all over the place and no one is ever, ever going to catch up. We're going to be chasing information right until the end and yeah. obviously after we even finish the books. And I, So I just like that Duran is touching on that and it, it serves for some delicious irony in telling Ariane to look for truths when she's walking into maybe the falsehood of the books. In, in <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, yeah, also to add what you're saying too, it's not even if they get news of what's happening somewhere else, the situation's constantly changing. So like news yeah. that reaches It them, almost doesn't matter. It's yeah, it's already old news by the time it gets there. So yeah, <laughs> so like he's just going to have to act. He's just going to act, have to act with incomplete information. We have this line Perhaps this John Connington is the son of that one or just some clever sellsword who has taken on a dead man's name. Well, it is John Connington, but of course they also suspect Aegon of being a fake and that's, you know, they're probably right about that. We certainly, I think all three of us probably would agree with that, Ashea as well. 
So, but we have similar comments. Like, just as the Kevin epilogue gave us Tarly very suspiciously questioning the Golden Company and Aegon and John Connington's like, if it really is him, ah, downplay, downplay. And of course, Connington is not a drunk. He is, in fact, aggressively anti-alcohol. If, we, if we're being honest here, he's like, I hate that. You're not drinking ever, Tyrion. You know, you had one drunken evening and that's it for you. No more alcohol for you. I, I thought about the possibility of like Sandor, who's quote unquote dead. If he ever leads an army, he'd be another dead drunk. But I don't know if that's meant to be like a joke like that or if it's just uh, part of the whole deception <laughs> going on here. But I, I wonder if there's any others like um, that are out there like that. Like, Someone's going to pretend to yeah, and- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got kind of a dead, a dead and a drunk with uh, Theros and, and Beric. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that's very true. Joe, you wrote some stuff here about inversions to the Starks here. That's some good stuff. Tell us about that. Sticks out to me anyway. You can, you've got inversions and comparisons, actually, to the Starks in this chapter. Firstly, right at the beginning, this kind of hit me. There's... We know there's the idea of what happens to Starks who go south, and you can flip that around to Martell's going north or east in Quentin's case. So we've already had Elia, we've already had Oberyn, now we've had Quentin. Ariane is the latest, so there should be some worry. There should be some definitely worry on the Duran's point. And I also think there's a lot of the sibling stuff going on. We've kind of touched on it here and there, but we get probably a better look than we have in any other chapter into the relationship between Ariane and Quentin. Because Quentin never really thinks about Ariane, to be honest. He doesn't really give her that much thought other than kind of like lumping her of the sand snakes of being like a bully if he comes back and he's failed. Other than that, he doesn't really think of it. But she does focus on it here about how they never formed a sibling bond because basically they were too busy being used as political coin by Duran. Like Quentin had to go off to pay for Oberyn's mistake with, I forget the the older Ironwood, whatever he was called, Anders. in that duel that Oberyn did. Yeah, yeah. And um, so he went off and but they were doing what you would have to do as heirs and as older children of a liege lord. But Ned never really does that, or at least he hadn't to, he hadn't to the point we got to of the Starks. He kept them close because of his trauma and because of the war and everything else. He wasn't sending any of them out to be fostered. No chance. Not after he lost his family before. He was keeping them as close as possible maybe that was the plan for the future. Maybe not. I mean, he would have had some difficult decisions, especially with Sansa and Aya. I think it would have been very, very difficult for him to ever, ever send them out to go and marry some Bannerman or anything like that. Um, obviously, that's not going to be an issue anymore. But um, <laughs> that would have been, that's just a very, very different thing of how the Martells and Starks were raised. And you mentioned the, the friendship groups. In fairness to the two... Like they may be different, Ariane and Quentin, but they're both super close with their friends. Like Ariane is really, really close to Silver and Garen and Dre. Mm. Quentin is really, really close to um, to Jerris and Archibald. And the Starks don't actually have that because they haven't actually gone out and made that many friends. They've been kept close by Ned because he doesn't want them going yeah, out. They, they do have some friends. <laughs> yeah, they have Fionn. Great. Um, and Clay. Clay was cool. Yeah, we true. liked Clay. And, right. and both Ariane and Sansa, Jane. they grew up yeah with a good female friend. Yeah, That's like you true, said, yeah. Jane. Yeah, was, uh, and Ariane was obviously, she have... was closest to Tyene. They both had like a best friend. Hmm. That's true. 
but they were lucky and Starks also was there. like we're friends with each other a little bit more you know with with the martels scattered a bit more and they couldn't have yeah, those true. sibling relationships yeah rob and john were very close that's a good point for yeah. example and, uh, maybe Arya and sansa weren't super close but they all loved Bran. <laughs> Everybody loved Bran. It's hard not to love Bran. <laughs> yeah, he was like the uniter. Of, yeah, I guess that's kind of fitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's we got a few questions to close things out, and maybe some final thoughts. Dornish Dame says, "Tell Father I've gone to make him proud." Ed Muir says this, but it could equally apply to Quentin or Arianne and their intention to prove themselves worthy of the mission Dorn entrusted them with. And others bring up Theon and the Lannister siblings. A lot of daddy issues. Period. Yes, very true. Yes trying to please your father as a noble child in this world is fraught with, yeah, well, fraught with all sorts of problems and concerns. That's a great take, Dornish Dame. Joe or Emily, do you have anything to add to that? It's really good. I, I think that's right on the money. As, as we say, that, that kind of applies almost to every family. Um, like it kind of comes back to Tyrion's dancing on the strings of those who came before Ooh. you. Like there's always, there's always something to repay with each generation. You've got to as you say, impress, especially depending on what kind of father you have. But in fairness, the Starks don't have that quite as much. They don't have it as like, I have to pay my father back. Whereas like Quentin does, he cannot, he literally can't go home unless he's successful to the point where he thinks stealing a dragon is a better option than just going home and saying, no, sorry, I didn't do that. <laughs> and well, we might, we might well see the same thing with Ariane. Like she might have a chance to leave King's Landing or not get involved with Aegon or whatever else. And she might think, no, 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 I'm the heir to Dawn, blah, blah, blah. I've got to do this and makes a wrong choice. But yeah, I think that's a great point. It is all over the place, all over the, the series. Yeah, I, I like this Dornish Dame. Thank you for that. I think it's interesting because it, it doesn't matter how good the father is. Um, you know, you've got Theon um, and Balon or Tywin and his kids, but you also have, you know, uh, Edmure and his father or the Martells who clearly have a much closer or slightly better relationship with their parent. I think it's just something that is inherent to the, the human experience, but it tells us so much about the relationship and, and a lot about the kids and their interpretations of honor and duty to their family yeah. based on how they, they react to that prompt. And That's very few characters have any sort of mother issues despite their mothers being dead. You know, we don't get a lot of that. Even though Malario, for example, like she wasn't around a bunch, she kind of took off. The main person I think of actually is John with Catelyn. Yeah, even though it's not his actual mother. Yeah, is that he has the most like actual issues with a mother figure who is around and treats him poorly and that he wants to live up to. I I can't think of anyone else that really thinks about that a lot. Jamie thinks about Joanna a a bit, like with the dream, but I wouldn't really call it similar. Give yeah, Robert Aaron cool. some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's funny that you bring up John and Catelyn because I, I think that can also apply to Catelyn that she had to kind of quickly fill like every role mm. instead of just one one role. She had to quite quickly grow up and be almost everything to Hoster and that in turn affected Lysa and Edmure because they were kind of shifted off their own paths a little bit and then that obviously had repercussions later on. Mm, that's true. Yeah, and the power of these daddy <laughs> issues is just is just magnifier magnified or multiplied by having to live up to these history of these powerful big long running houses. It's not just Tywin, yeah. it's Tywin Lannister, right? Uh, if Tywin was just some 
lower ranking lord, this he wouldn't have that presence. He wouldn't have the power of this long history behind him that he's like, you have to uphold this because it's not just about him, even though a lot of it is. He's able to make it about the house and say, look, the house is what's important. The house is what's important. And I'm the head of the house, so I blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's just such a great long-running topic. You, you guys mentioned Theon uh, and Winterfell, but that was actually, that was a parallel issue. Theon's trying to take Winterfell because of daddy issues, and Ramsey takes Winterfell because of daddy issues, right? Like that's that's the whole thing. Like, and they're do and they do it in the way of their people. Theon does it his sneaky, like raiding, clever boldness, ironborn way that they're proud of, and Ramsey does it this sneaky Bolton way where it's just really underhanded and brutal, and blames it on someone else. Yeah, just really, uh, it's so well done. We could we could make that a whole topic, but. The the whole time that that's going on too, you have Bran's POV where he's thinking about, you know, what would my father do? I have to, you know, even though I'm lost my my home, how would I react? How can I be on, you know, what what's expected of me? And so there's even that layer. Great point. Yeah, Brienne. Yeah, totally. Dornish Dame asked another really good question here with the Ilya Liana parallels. Yes, we building on that. How much does Duran know about Liana? And how much will Elias Sand remind John Connington of Liana? That's something I just completely didn't think about, which is a pretty huge thing, because mm-hmm. John Connington knows Liana. He was at the tournament. He knows probably more than a lot of people about what happened, even, even if he doesn't know exactly what happened. He would certainly have some thoughts on that. So that's a huge deal, and I'm not really sure how to answer that. I think he's going to be wary. He's going to be like what we talked about earlier. John Connington is like going to not like Arianne or Elias Sand's presence as they threaten to control Aegon and he's not going to be want that. So yeah, uh, adding this whole dimension to it of him having seen this happen before to the man he was in love with. He was in love with Rhaegar and Leon. He, she runs, he doesn't like Elia. <laughs> His thoughts on Elia are kind of like she wasn't worthy of him, but he hasn't, he doesn't ever really think about Lyanna. So that's maybe that's coming. And do you guys have any thoughts on what that, how that might take shape? It's a really good question. Yeah, I didn't. We didn't really get to talk about this, but in this in this sample chapter, we get to see the letter that John sends Duran, and it's it's right. very cleverly written in how it focuses on uh, Elia because he know he knows that's how it's going to get through to Duran. But as you say, we know that he like he wasn't he didn't dislike her, but he certainly wasn't fond of her. If anything, he was just jealous of her. This is really 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 very interesting. What you bring up here about he clearly thinks that the the choice to go for Lyanna is what led to Rhaegar's downfall. So he's not going to let Aegon repeat that mistake. Do not let your eyes wander. You're supposed to be who, who, basically who I set you up with. So whether he places Ariane in that role, in that Lyanna role, I mean, uh, or or Eliasand or someone else, because like they're not going to be short of people trying to get Aegon this way. It can be a Marjorie. It can be it could be anyone. Like there's every family is going to try and make their move on Aegon. Uh, especially if they think they can get behind John Connington. And John is going to be very, very much like, no, don't take your eyes off the prize. It's almost like that meme of the guy turning around. Like, don't do that because uh, <laughs> you'll end up like your dad. Distracted boyfriend meme. Yeah. <laughs> someone make that meme quickly. Someone will do it for us. <laughs> nice. That's great. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if John Connington hears about Rob and Rob's downfall because that would be a great way to teach Aegon the lesson of like Ooh. it's actually important for you to marry the person you're supposed to marry oh, do you want yeah. to get red wedding um, <laughs> wow great point yeah wow recent <laughs> I, example yeah, I, backfired. yeah I also was thinking too you know I think you know the the Elia and Liana parallels I feel like 
you know, he didn't like Ilya because of a pretty clear reason that I don't think applies to Aegon's match, you know? True, um, true. There's no hint of any romance between fake father and fake son here. Thankfully. Thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I don't think he's going to be as as worried about, you know, I like being jealous of who he ends up with. Uh, but I think that in his thoughts about Ilya, he he makes clear he doesn't think that he's worthy and that she, you know, isn't a good partner for him. And I think that that's, what he, you know, if he cares about anything beyond just trying to keep the Daenerys dream alive, that that that's what he's going to be looking for. So who has these qualities that will actually complement him? That will also maybe keep him from straying and, and making those mistakes. So it's who that ends up being, we'll see. It's interesting you bring up jealousy there because I think that will be quite a big factor. Not romantic, not romantic jealousy, perhaps, but like Aegon is his one thing. That's all, literally, that's all he's living for. He knows he's on a time limit. That's all that's left of Rhaegar, he thinks. That's all that he's done for the last couple of years. So he's not going to be in a rush, even if he knows politically it makes sense, he's still not going to be in a rush to give away Aegon's time, Aegon's attention, Aegon's dependence on him. I think that is going to be a bit of a balancing act for Jon throughout of when to lengthen the leash, so to speak, and let Aegon go out and make these connections and be the king, as opposed to his son. He's not going to want to give up the time and the, the access to his son because, again, like I say, that's literally all he has and it's all he has of Rhaegar as well. And somewhere in all this, mm-hmm. Grayscale fits in and I don't know how, but damn, am I curious. Like, how does that fit into this whole scenario? Like, what the... Talk about a wild card. <laughs> Mr. Connington Stonehand here. The Stone Griffin. <laughs> what is his deal? Uh, shout out to Joe Magician. Joe Magician channel just did a stream on what caused the doom yesterday. And Joe is excellent on a variety of topics across the Song of Ice and Fire landscape. And he mentions what he thinks is the most likely scenario is like a reverse of Olena Redwine, where he thinks Ariane will get promised to Connington, but seduces Aegon instead. That looks pretty similar to where we fall. Um, I bet him against that. I'm sorry? I bet him against that. <laughs> Okay. Just now in the chat earlier, I said, I do not think that will happen. Well, I, I, I think I agree with you. I don't know about the promise to Connington, but the seduces Aegon instead part. I oh, yeah. Are. Yeah. I said I I was I bet $50 against Joe that <laughs> I do not think Ariane will entertain the idea of Connington marry, marrying her. Okay. Eventually, we agreed that it's possible that it is floated in Connington's chapter, but I don't okay. think it'll go any further than like, Maybe this. Nah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> well, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, last to party says, I thought Hota had his own human heart and conflict. And conflict. Duty to Doran versus love for Ariane. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't call it conflict. Maybe more like regret or disappointment. Maybe it doesn't quite rise to the I mean, I think conflict. he had a conflict yeah, there. I, guess, I yeah, think he did. Some. Yeah. I think he's kind of now he has less conflict. He's kind of chosen what he's and doing. Arian's kind of on Doran's <laughs> side, so there's no... Yeah, yeah there isn't a choice. You're right, but they're yeah. just on the same side as well. Okay, so yeah, basically, it point. wasn't the death For of now. anything. <laughs> they just fuse. For now, yeah. One more take from uh, Dornish Dame, who's really nailing it with the questions here. Uh, this is really just a comment, not a question. It sounds like there haven't been this sort of dreams in recent Tolan. Yeah, that's a good point because if, if Tiora was not... If there were others like Tiora, they might not be so dismissive of it. Kind of like the Stark kids, like genetic magic coming back through in the current time period. Like when was the last time there was a, a Stark skin changer? Well, we don't know, but it, it doesn't seem to have been in Ned's generation or, or probably not Rickard's generation. 
maybe not even for quite a while before that. So it could have a little bit to do with the resurgence of magic. Might be why those dreams are popping up. Might be because it's just, it's really happening. The dragons are returning to the world. That's sort of a, uh, a Lovecraft trope, not a trope, but Lovecraft pattern is that when there's sensitive people in the world that, that their dreams pick up these things when they're out there, but they're not going to dream of just anything when there's nothing out there to dream of, which fits in with the whole rise of magic, the comet and all that coming back. So any comments on that? I think it's a good, good take. I, I was going to say earlier, um, I think you were right when you were deliberating uh, how Tiora has these dreams and you were saying about, you and Nina both were saying about the descendancy. I think that's right, but it would be cool if we one day found out it's actually like a touch of green sight or something and that we actually have it at both ends of the continent instead of just the one. Uh, I don't think that is right, but I mean, we do have a little bit in the next chapter like that we touch on the children of the forest just over the Sea of Dawn. So I, maybe there's something there. That, that would be cool. I'd just like to see it like stretch the whole length of West Russia. I mean, to be fair, we do hear about Roynish magic and they would be descended from them. And we just don't know anything about it except for it being, yeah. you know, water magic, etc. We We don't know anything about it having anything to do with green dreams, anything like that. But it is possible. Yeah. Why not? Mistman Jones uh, jumps in with a question here but that uh, right before we're ending here. And it says, do you guys see the connection between Aegon and John Connington and Gaiman, Pale Hair, and Perkin the Fleet during the Dance of the Dragons? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think there's also a lot of connections to Tommen there. I wonder how this is going to fit in because Tommen has pale hair. He doesn't have the, the, the Lannister gold hair is, is listed multiple times as more pale for him. He has like pale gold. And since he's a fake heir also, Gaiman, is, Gaiman was a false claimant. and. Tommen is in that regard too, and so is Aegon. So I see Gaiman is sort of a, a culmination of of plot lines of both Aegon the Sixth and Tommen. You know, Gaiman's fate is to die of, of as a food taster, and we've talked about how poison could be in, in line here. Now, Perkin the Flea, of course, kind of abandons his charge, which John Connington will not do because this is the only thing he's living for. Perkin the Flea takes the black, which John Connington won't take the black. <laughs> so because of his limited lifespan and all that. But I've definitely thought about focusing on that parallel specifically in the past and maybe just haven't gotten around to it. But yes, good catch, Miss Man Jones. Does anyone else have anything to w- add? Worth to mentioning about, um, I, I don't know, a potential parallel between Perkin the Flea um, and John Connington is the Laurie Clubfoot, Laurie Strong connection there, where he claims that he was acting under the the orders of Laurie's, not and whereas Connington would be acting over the under the orders of Varys. That's true. Yeah, so, Laurie's and Varys obviously the we often compare the two of them. <laughs> so, anyways, just that additionally, I suppose that's a good call. Yeah, yeah I'm, I wouldn't rule out abandonment by John Connington, but it certainly wouldn't be by his choice. It would be something like the grayscale has progressed to a point that he has to sequester himself away. Yeah, and I think and we also talked about that it messes with his brain. Like the stone men slowly go yeah. mad, and maybe he'll just go mad. <laughs> and we've also talked a bit about if Connington was faced with Jon Snow. And we ultimately don't think he will be. But if he was faced with that, that is a real conflict for him. Maybe like, whoa, this is weird. <laughs> we joked about it. Was he named for me? No. <laughs> that would be the big convincing <laughs> part. <laughs> but yeah, what would he choose? Like the kid that he had raised that's like a son to him, but that he's not sure if it's Rhaegar's son or the kid that whatever we somehow have proof is Rhaegar's son because he's riding a dragon or yeah. something like that. <laughs> but ultimately, I don't think it's going to come to that. 
And and it, yeah, that's that's another thing about Game and Fail here is he he becomes convinced that he realizes that he was foisted as a false heir on the realm, even though he was a kid. It's possible that will happen with Aegon and that Danny slays the lie of his parentage and he's like, wow, I'm not Rhaegar's son. And then what does he do? Like, does he can he face that or does he just I don't know. I mean, that's why this could do this. That's why I kind of mix Tommen up into all this where it's not just about Aegon, but yeah, the parallels are really strong here. I'm glad Miss Van Jones brought that up. We'll probably have, we'll probably be coming back to this when later when these these, these themes and parallels come even become even more clear. Um, but for now, we don't have a lot of information. One last uh, reference point here. Nina points out that this might be a nod to Dune. She did not shed a tear. Arianne Martell was a princess of Dorne, and Dornishmen did not waste water lightly. That is one of the huge themes of Dune, the preciousness of water. They also don't cry, but there was a moment where Paul mourns at a funeral and he cries. And this astonishes the Fremen who have this like, you know, hardcore don't waste water attitude. And it's, it's really, really has, it's a really powerful moment because he's wasting water, but it's, it's symbolic of his loss and grief and, and how much he cares which is a little bit of a parallel to Doran's standing at the beginning. It's uh, going beyond as a display of emotion. It's a little bit of physical suffering mixed in. Good catch, Nina, there. Well, that does it for today. Um, Big, big thanks to our guests. You guys were awesome. So we sort of talked about what you guys have planned next. Maybe reiterate what your initial plans are. You're finishing off TWOW, right? And then going into Scraps and Screens. Is that right? Did I, did I say that right? Yeah, uh, too much is the answer. We've take, we've bitten off far more than we can chew. It's a huge mistake. <laughs> I blame myself entirely. Um, I don't know what I've got Emily into here, but she will find out. So yeah, we're, we've got Scraps and Scrolls continuing. Uh, the our, our version of Ariane will probably be out Tuesday or Thursday or, or pretty soon like it normally is. Uh, that will keep rolling along beside yourselves. At the same time, we do have these um, episodes of 100 Questions. Um, the second one will be around pretty soon. The first one's already out. Then we've got Scraps and Screens as well, which Emily's going to help out with. And we've done some fun extra stuff just to welcome Emily to our... We've done some sporkle quizzes. We've had a little interview with her. That'll be appearing. So there's just stuff everywhere, isn't there, Emily? Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, our question list is growing, but we're not quite to 100. So if people have questions about the Winds of Winter they want answered, tweet them at us, get on our Patreon, whatever. Um, We will do our best to answer. Right on. And give us your own answers as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this, obviously, y'all have heard us work with Joe plenty of times, but this was our first time working with Emily. And I would say it went really well. Emily, you had some great points. You, You caught a lot of parallels that we missed. And just in general, it was a pleasure doing this episode with all of you. Thank you. You're welcome. And I'm sure we'll get to do it again sometime. We work closely with Isle of Faces, so this will certainly not be the last time. I'm looking forward to now that it's a different setup for y'all. Yeah, we like having additional voices. Speaking of voices, please submit your voice takes. We've been getting some good, steady, but maybe not enough voice recordings from y'all for the chapters. We will keep at it. We will keep reminding folks. Mercy is very close to done. Um, By the time a lot of you hear this, it may already be out. And we're working on Tyrion 2 next. And I specifically right now need a brown Ben Plum, a Casporio, and 
Jeez, now I can't remember. That's the worst. Uh, anyways, I need three more voice. Uh, Jora, I need Jora. So if you have a really good Jora voice or, you know, your take on it. Uh, if you have submitted, I do go through all of the submissions, but sometimes you might like want to put on a voice for a character. So feel free to keep submitting. And yeah, exciting stuff. Especially women, please submit because uh, women apparently are less likely to submit their voices. Yeah, we have more men. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Uh, but yeah, we need voices of all kinds. Uh, please submit. You don't have to be a great voice actor. Voices are voices. We want them to, what, what matters is that they're, you have a decent recording and that it's somewhat distinct. It doesn't have to be. You don't think you have to have it. You don't have to think of yourself as having a great voice. I mean, think about the example of Penny, for example. You want her her voice to have a little unpolishedness, so, you know, a little... Yeah, we don't want everyone to just sound like some perfect voice actor. Yeah, no, if, right. you, if you think you have to have a great voice for this, you're wrong. <laughs> you have to have a good microphone. <laughs> that's that's more important. So let's uh, let's hopefully a few more of you uh, get involved because it's a lot of fun and those these chapters will be out there forever and it might be something we continue to build on. Maybe we'll do some more chapters. Maybe we'll take a vote and say, hey, you guys, do this chapter, do that chapter. You never know. Um, we did refer to a few of our other episodes and other podcast um, adventures with this one. Certainly the Blackfire episodes are very relevant here. So are the House Dane histories, as well as the uh, Aegon the Third, uh, John stuff. Yeah, there's just lots of... Just because you talk about game and, and pale hair. Yeah. All. Yeah. Good call. And of course, the Isle of Faces podcast. Check out them as well. That is also mentioned. Next week, we have Arian 2. Fittingly, we're proceeding along the Arian track. We have Minaro, Geek TV, and Scad from Davos Fingers. As I guess that's going to be a lot of fun. The former we've never had on before. We've never the, had either of them. Oh, I thought we'd had Scad on for a stream at some point, but I guess not. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think we even had him on for Quiplash, did we? Yeah, Quiplash. Yeah, anyways, uh, we've been on panels with him. So. Yes, we have worked together, just not in this setting. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Ditto with the Monero, who we haven't worked with at all, so that's going to be cool. We love getting new voices in here and try to highlight other uh, members of the community and other shows and, and blogs and all that. So uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks to people who came live and submitted questions. Really good questions today. You guys always do well with that. Um, really got us talking this time. And uh, thanks to everyone who gathers at our various social media platforms, whether it's on Facebook, thanks to our mods for doing their thing over there. We got Flick, we got Facebook, we got Slack and Discord. So lots of places to hang out and chat, not just about these chapters, but about other stuff. We're talking about you know, different TV shows. We talk about, we're a lot of talk about the spinoffs these days on the Discord especially, but we're also going to be, we also talk about other, other series. Like I just finished reading Broken Earth and I've been talking about that with people and talking about Wheel of Time, Lord of the Rings, things like that. Just fun stuff, Star Wars. Thanks to Ashea for running everything from behind the scenes here. She had some, added some great takes today as well. That's not too uncommon. Yeah, I like how you said time. that a lot. I was about to point that out. She added some great takes today. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times you just a lot of times you're just so busy that you the chat was time. actually a lot less active for an obvious reason, which is that it's Mother's Day here in the right. U.S. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> good thing to celebrate. But yeah, it does kind of make the uh, the chat a little slower. That's fine. That's uh, very understandable. You definitely hope people are spending time with their moms. Thanks also to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the intro music. 
Thanks to ClaireDocs.de and Kevin McLeod for the video intro and for the Valoritas music. Thanks to our engineer, who is not only doing great work on the podcast episodes, but he is a big part of the audio project, chapter project for Wow. Thank you very much to our patrons. You guys keep us running. You are the reason that we are here. We would have had to abandon this show long ago if not for the monthly support we get. It is vital. It is valuable. It is much appreciated. And if you'd like to join in uh, to become a supporter, we offer you things like bonus episodes, script access, things like that. Go to patreon.com slash history of Westerners. Check out the level that is best for you. And we'll see you later. Also go to Here Be Dragons. They'll be starting at six o'clock, which as of now is, as of now in live moment in the live world, it's about 20 minutes away. If you are hearing this podcast version after Here Be Dragons, YouTube is always there waiting for you to check their replays out. This time they're talking about great and terrible mothers in fiction. How fitting. I wonder if Cersei will come up. Um, if not, maybe other ones will, but I'm sure they've, they've picked a lot of great options and great characters to discuss. And that does it. Thanks again to our excellent guests from the Isle of Faces. We will, see, we will see you all next time. You know what to do, folks. Valar Ruiz.